You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Chris Claremont, recommending that you take a listen to Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, this is the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Miss Marvel, Episode 2, The Woman Who Fell to Earth, covering a period of Miss Marvel from 1978 to 1981. And I am your host, Curtis Findlay. I'm your co-host, J.C. Carlos. J.C. Carlos from Facebook, or just Carlos. And we are going to jump into this. Uh, this is the second of two epic collections that kind of collect the complete Carol Danvers Miss Marvel. Uh, after this, she goes on to a couple other things, and she'll eventually resume the identity of Miss Marvel before coming into her Captain Marvel uh, persona. But this is kind of all of her classic stuff. This is the end of her story. Yeah, I, uh, I dig it. All this 1970s and 1980s Marvel is right up my alley. And uh, there is one scene... Uh, I think it's in the Avengers issue. Somebody says, um, who is this miss or something like that? And then Scarlet Witch says, it's not a miss. It's a Miz. Uh, and <laughs> I've been, I, so I've been pronouncing Ms. Marvel the wrong way. And I should have, I should have guessed this because this is built out of the feminist movement in the seventies. It's yes. pronounced Ms. Marvel, not Miss Marvel. It's Ms. Marvel. Correct. And so, uh, if you were listening to the last episode, we were saying Miss Marvel the entire time, and I'm sure most well, people. Well, maybe you were. Do. Curtis. Oh, you I were. Just assumed it was your. I assumed it was your Canadian oh, accent. no, it it wasn't <laughs> at all. Uh, I'm going to do my best to say Ms. Marvel for the rest of this one because that's I think an important distinction, especially coming from the era, um, and just it's the proper way to pronounce Miss Ms. <laughs> it just did it again. <laughs> Uh, okay, so tell me, what are we reading in this epic collection? Are we, what are we talking about in this episode today? So, Volume 2 covers Ms. Marvel, number 15 through 23, Marvel Team-Up, 76-77, Marvel 2-in-1, number 51, Marvel Superheroes, number 10 and 11, and Avengers, number 200, and Annual, number 10, and a little bit from Marvel Fanfare, number 24 as well. So that is, uh, it kind of jumps all over the place. There's a lot of different series here, yeah. And but it it actually doesn't. It's not bad. No, it's 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 really cool. Yeah, most of it's written by Chris Claremont, which keeps the continuity going, even though we're jumping around through different series. And I think that they've chosen wisely with the epi- with the issues that they've included here to tell the rest of Carol Danvers' story really well. Yeah, if, if you read these volumes one and two together, it's it's a nice, tight, compact story. It's 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 a good read. Uh, usually in these epic collections, they'll just publish these in order as they were published. So if uh, you know if if you if there's an issue of Marvel two and one, they'll stick it kind of uh, in between, like following where the months kind of lay. Uh, they'll make some right. exceptions if there's small continuity errors. They'll shift it by a month or two or so. But in this one, it's an odd thing because the series was canceled with with uh, issue number twenty three. 
And issue number 24 and part of issue number 25 were already completed when it was canceled and then it was shelved. And then in the 90s, those two issues were eventually published as Marvel superheroes number 10 and 11. Yeah, that's very. I'm so glad these are. I had no idea those even existed. Uh, I wasn't yeah. really reading Marvel in the 90s, and uh, I, I definitely read all of the Marvel team ups and the Marvel two and ones and the Avengers leading up to uh, the Rogue storyline. But I, I kind of fairly knew about Ms. Marvel's storyline from her own book, although I never read them. But uh, those those extra issues helped fill the gap. Yeah, they really do. They're they're actually quite important in some cases. And amazing that they that Claremont kind of continued the story without even uh, sticking these issues in there anywhere. Uh, he kind of makes reference to them, in fact, in Avengers 200. No, no, in the annual 10. Yes. But we don't actually see the action that happens in those issues there. So uh, we'll talk about that more. Um, but yeah, the reason why I brought that up is because they are placing those in order of the story rather than sticking those at the end because they were published years and years later. So they're, they right. actually placed them all in, in a nice order. In fact, they split up Marvel superheroes number 11 into two parts so they could stick Avengers 200 kind of in the middle there where it fits in chronologically. <laughs> so, and we'll address mm-hmm. that when we when we get over there as well. Uh, before we move over to the Twitter poll, though, uh, can you tell me, is there anything about this epic collection that we need to know in advance before jumping into to reading this? What do readers need to know? Uh, I guess if you read Volume 1, you're up to speed, but if you didn't, just uh, quickly, Carol Danvers was a supporting character in the Captain Marvel book. Uh, she got her own book, Ms. Marvel, where we find that because of her exposure to the psychomagnetron, her, her human DNA was mixed with Cree DNA, and it gave her uh, Cree knowledge and Cree powers, and she became a superhero from that point on. Uh, there was an aspect of her storyline where it was kind of a duality. She didn't realize she was a superhero, and then Chris Claremont took over the book, um, took that aspect out, and I... I appreciated that and Mm -hmm. uh here we are now with volume two yeah yeah and um i think maybe one important continuing plot thread her therapist is also her kind of on again off again boyfriend or uh (laughs) don't even know exactly what the relationship is so he'll pop up a couple of times and her friend what was her name i can't remember Salia Petri. Oh yeah, Salia Petri uh, is right. was uh, she tragically died in the first volume. It was a quite a quite a tragic death where Carol had to, to decide: does she save her friend or does she battle these supervillains? And she chose to battle the right. supervillains. So that was quite quite something. But I think other than that, uh, everybody can be up to speed. It, if you only have this volume and you haven't read volume one, I think it's okay to just jump right in. Of course, it would be better if you started with Volume 1, but the way they did comics back then, you could jump in and, and be totally fine. Yeah, and that's what's so cool about the epic. They, they really do their best to, to try to chunk together issues that sort of fit together. So if you if you have Epic Collection Volume 13 and no other issues in the run of the Epic Collection, you, you have a, a good book that you can enjoy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, we're going to move over to our Twitter poll. Uh, I asked the question, uh, which Carol Danvers costume uh, uh, do you like the best? And the options were the original Marvel-influenced costume, 
the black warbird costume, which is the one we see her change into in this volume, her binary costume, or her Captain Marvel costume. And I made a little note saying, generally speaking, because I know that there are variations on each of these costumes. Right, right. Well, which one would you pick? I would pick what you've got in there as the black warbird costume. Yeah. I think that would be my choice, and that's my guess for what is the overwhelming winner. Uh, okay, so I will pick that one too. Definitely, I, I think it looks the best, and I think popular vote. It's a very, very close one. So in really? la- in last place was the binary costume. Not many people cared for that one. I can understand that. Although it's pretty cool, though, I like it. Very cool. Didn't make a huge impact, though. It doesn't have no. the iconic status that some of her other costumes does. Uh, her original costume, the original Ms. Marvel costume, only got twenty two percent of the vote. So that one came in second to last. Very, very, very close between the Warbird and the Captain Marvel costume, but ultimately Captain Marvel took took the lead with 34% of the votes. Wow. So, well, yeah. It's the current costume. It is the current costume, and it's it's the movie costume. I don't know if that, if that has anything to do with it. Which can't um, hurt. Yep. And, and it's, it is a good costume. I still like it. It's it's really, really nice. Um, great influence in the, from the original Captain Marvel outfit as well, and the original Ms. Marvel outfit. Just kind of uh, gives it a new spin, a little bit more militaristic and stuff. But yeah, I do like yeah. the Warbird one. I think it looks sl- slick. Uh, I like the just the contrast between the black costume and her kind of bright blonde hair. I like the way she wears her sash around her waist. Looks good. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Dave Cockrum designs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, we can move into some listener comments. I asked on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter to give us your comments about this particular volume. So we got a a bunch of good comments here. Uh, Patrick says, Some brief thoughts I had on this epic. Marvel 2-in-1 number 51 was a highlight. I could read heroes playing poker and bantering for an entire issue or two. Though I didn't think the art of the particular issue was strong, page 234 stood out as brutal and striking. Now, page 234, uh, let me just flip to that one here. This is Mike Vosberg art, and this is the scene where Carol's trying to call Mike on the phone, and there's no answer. And uh, yeah, he's right. That That is a great, a great layout, great way to show the action, great use of time passing. You can kind of, yeah. especially when you can't hear the phone ringing, there's only one ring sound effect, but you can imagine, like, if you're watching TV, the camera would be going back and forth through the different, to the different scenes, like the use of color. Yeah, and it's really, you don't even know what the heck happened at that point. No, I mean, you have ideas, but, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, when we get to that issue, but yeah, he's right, Patrick's on it. Yeah, uh, he also says, um, Carol getting fired was an unexpected and welcome idea. Dave Cockrum's design is the definitive Ms. Marvel costume in my eyes. Uh, Enjoyed the battles with Deathbird and Tiger Shark. And Frank Gianelli was a fun character to bounce off slash clash with Carol. And also, one last thing, great to get Rogue's first appearance. And it's cool that her iconic accent and hair were present in her first appearance. Yeah, I'm on board with everything Patrick's got to say here. I feel like he enjoyed this book the way I did. Yeah, yeah, thanks for your comment, Patrick. Next comment is from Hemi, who says, I really enjoyed what was being done in the Ms. Marvel title, but then the Avengers story really went off the rails for me, and it really did some unfixable damage to a character for no other reason than some editor, writer, and or artist thought it might be interesting. 
Yeah, um, that's that's true. I don't know that I would say it's unfixable. Yeah, I would say it, it kind of got it kind of got fixed over time. It, it did kind of get fixed, <laughs> and that kind of thing doesn't need to be fixable, especially when you're dealing with with situation like rape in this in this instance. Like you don't want to quote unquote fix it. You want right. to deal with it and deal with the consequences and that kind of thing. So, and we'll definitely talk about that more when we get to that issue because that's a, <laughs> a big thing to talk about. I'm. <laughs> Oh, I, I'm sure if if you have another interview with Chris, Chris Claremont, he could spend two hours talking about that topic. Yeah. Well, funny you should mention that. I do have some clips from Chris about that that I will play when we get to that issue there. So nice. Uh, just remind me if I don't bring it up. Um, okay. One more thing in this comment here. The, the villains were great, and I never cared for Tiger Shark, but he was a lot of fun. Same with Deathbird. Uh, you can feel the nuance of Rogue from the beginning. Mystique was a bit odd since I never really understood what her goals were, but it was fun to see her early appearance. I completely agree. I have no idea why Mystique was after Ms. Marvel. We'll, and we, we'll talk about it in the issues. I, I, I feel like I, I have a, a grasp on 50% okay. of her motivations, and That's then good. 50% I have theories, so we'll see. But, but yes, definitely. A lot of times you read comics and you just take it for granted. But if you're actually going delving into the motivations, there are a lot of questions in this book. Yeah. So Pierce says most of the book was decent, but but not really standout stuff. This bit at the end, though, with Carol's mysterious pregnancy. Who boy. Rarely have we seen such a moral failure on part of the Avengers, joking and cheering when Carol was terrified. Worse, they send her off with a guy who admitted he had mentally manipulated her into falling in love with him. The panel here just chills me, and I can't even think about any other story in this book. This incident overshadows all the rest. Yeah, powerful statement. The issue that the panel that she points to is in um, the Avengers annual. It's on page 356. Mm-hmm. It's where Carol is sitting at the at the pool on the pool chair addressing the Avengers and sort of calling them out for their behavior. Um yeah, it's a really very well-written scene. So, we'll we'll definitely touch on that one as well when we get to that issue. Yeah. Uh, Philip says, I can't wait to read this. He hasn't read this volume yet. Mystique's first appearance, Rogue's first appearance, more Deathbird, the unpublished issue 24. No doubt that this book would be hot today with Sabretooth in it, plus other plot points promised. Uh, That's issue number four he's referring to. And he says, I feel like the cover is too similar to volume one. I think they should have used the unpublished cover for 24 as the epic collection cover. Um, I guess that's the one with Sabretooth on it. Yeah. There is some similarity, I suppose. I think they really wanted to show off the new costume for this for this yes. volume here. And um, while I agree it's kind of her in, engaged in battle with a villain, that's kind of what Ms. Marvel does. <laughs> so it's, yeah. uh, it's apropos. <laughs> the one thing that I thought was that should have been on the cover was her new logo. I really like how the Epic Collections change the logo to reflect the era as they go on. Yes. That's a good point, especially with the new costume. With the new costume, she got a new logo, and they decided to keep the original logo for this cover, so that's too bad. But, oh well, it's a minor nitpicky thing. <laughs> yeah, but that newer one was way cooler. Yeah. Philip says, I'm going to skip over Avengers 200, by the way, and I think, Philip, that that's actually a bad idea. Even though it's sort of a hated issue, it's still an important <laughs> one to read, and if you skip it, then a lot of the rest of the book won't make sense. <laughs> You bring up a good point. Uh, I, 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 man, I can't wait to discuss that issue when we get to it. It's, yeah. 
Okay, so John, I got two more comments. John says, I enjoyed the first two-thirds of the book, um, but less so the tie-ins about Danvers after the Ms. Marvel series ended. The Avengers stories in particular took a really dark turn, which didn't have near the fun factor of Claremont's work. Yes, I'm, uh, I think everybody can probably be in agreement here that the last mm-hmm. um, two-thirds kind of goes a little, a little off the rails. And Ben says, uh, interesting mix of Ms. Marvel stories. Chris Claremont writes some interesting stories and has some great art by Sal Buscema and Dave Cockrum. Uh, Claremont does what a lot of writers had to do back in this era when their books get cancelled. They move the stories into other books they are writing. So Claremont moves Carol into Avengers, has the dramatic confrontation with Rogue that defines so much of their history. And the inclusion of that Avengers annual number 10 with an amazing Michael Golden art and Rogue beating down the Avengers may be worth the cost of the book on its own. Yeah, I can't argue that. Avengers 10 was one of my favorite comics uh, as a kid. I, I, I bought that off the rack solely because it had the X-Men on the cover. And uh, I, well, I'm so glad they had the X-Men on the cover because I would have I missed that issue. That yeah. Spectacular. Now, he says art by Sal Buscema, but I don't think Sal is in this book at all. He's probably referring to Jim Mooney, who does most of the early issues of, of the Miss Marvel stuff here. Yes. And then maybe it's a John Buscema cover for this first issue, number 15. It looks very John Buscema. Yeah, the, that cover for 15 is definitely John Buscema, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, yeah, and John, Sal, he did a few ep- issues on the first volume, but I don't, right. you're right. I don't think he's anything in this one. Yeah. Okay, I think that does it for our comments. Why don't we um, take a dive into issue number 15? Let's do it. Yeah, I'll start us off here. This one is called The Shark and the Deadly Beast. In this one, Carol is apartment hunting. That's another thing you should know from the last one is her apartment got destroyed. Yes. So she is apartment hunting here. And Carol comes across Wondar, who tells her that Namorita has been kidnapped by Tiger Shark. And that's a very, very brief recap of what happens here because there's a lot going on. But Wondar is a character that first appeared in Marvel 2 and 1. And I got the opportunity to read that book in its epic collection form um, last year. Or was it last year? In the middle, maybe in the middle of summer. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, that's... I feel like there's a few references throughout this volume to other things that I only read in epic collections. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um but Wondar, yeah, he he appears there. He's got such an interesting backstory because he is sort of a um, like an analog to Superman a little bit. He comes from a planet mm-hmm. that it was exploded. He's the only surviving member of his race. His thing, though, is that he, while he is fully adult, um, his, his body grew while traveling through space. And so he only has the mind of like a two-year-old, and he's learning as he goes. And so he... In in the Marvel two and one, Namorita kind of takes him under her wing, and I don't know if they're like they if they have an apartment together with Namorita's roommate because she's a a college student at this time. But but he appears here, and he goes on to bigger and better things later on. But right here, he's just a device to let um, let Ms. Marvel know what's going on. Right. Um, let me see here. So there is one scene in here that I was unsure of. There is a scene where. Uh, Ms. Marvel is, or Carol actually is in the offices of Woman Magazine, and Tabitha is like stumbling all over the place and knocking things over. And you remember? She's a jinx. Yeah. I didn't understand why this scene existed. The only thing I thought at the, there's the one part where Carol's like, hey, you know, 
go back to your desk before you get fired. And Tabitha says something like, well, my dad wouldn't like that. He and Mr. Jameson are friends, almost as if maybe they were planting a seed to use later where, you know, Carol might have had to fire Tabitha, but then Tabitha got her dad involved. Who knows? Yeah, it was just out of place. I thought it was weird. Like, it's there for a comedy relief, perhaps. But right. But it's a whole page dedicated to that. Dedicated to that, and we never revisit any of it ever again, nor have we seen that before. So it kind of comes out of left right, field. Exactly. And in fact, I don't even, I mean, remember, she's got a, a cast of five or six office coworkers that she has with her. I don't particularly remember Tabitha no, not, from the first like. volume, but, but she's definitely memorable in this issue. Yeah. Uh, Jean DeWolf also makes a cameo appearance, and she is a, a supporting cast member of the Spider-Man titles at this time. Mm-hmm. And this is a little bit of a carryover because uh, Miss Marvel, when she started, uh, when her series launched, Mary Jane was one of her supporting cast. And Peter Parker yes. showed up a bunch. And, of course, she works for J. Jonah Jameson. So she very much was grounded in the Spider-Man world. And having Gene DeWolf here kind of uh, kind of brings it even more. It's into a callback. That. Yeah, uh, of course they dispense with all of that stuff very quickly here and uh, remove all Spider-Man characters, so we never see Gene DeWolf again. <laughs> also, this is probably around the time when maybe she—I don't know if this is a spoiler alert or what—but <laughs> she gets killed, and that might be a real yes. time over in the Spider-Man comics as well. Um, are you a fan of Tiger Shark? Carlos? You know, I am 100% a fan of his, his design. I have always loved that costume design. Uh, I was never a big Namor reader, but I, I read Avengers, and he was he was in there in that epic beatdown of the Under Siege uh, right. volumes. Yep. So uh, Tiger Shark, if, if I had to come up with a, a list of maybe my, my 20 favorite Marvel villains, I dare say Tiger Shark might make that list solely based on his costume design. I just think oh. he looks so cool. Yeah, my issue with Tiger Shark is that he is he's just a whiny brat of a character. <laughs> Every appearance that I've read of him, he's all like, "Ah, you're I'm so hard done by all these people and you're going to I'm going to get you because you don't like me." <laughs> it's like I don't know. <laughs> there's just there's not much more to his character than that and I just reviewed the second um, Wolverine volume, Epic Collection. Tiger Shark shows up to battle Wolverine in the Axe of Vengeance storyline, and he does the same thing. He's just he's hmm. there because he's like, I'm just gonna. I don't have any purpose except to kill superpowered people, and I don't like you, so I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> <laughs> well, he looks cool, <laughs> but he looks cool. Yes, that is his uh, saving grace for sure. Uh, do you want to move on to the next one? Let's do it. Uh, Ms. Marvel number 16 is The Deep Deadly Silence. And in it, we find that uh, Ms. Marvel has lost Tiger Shark in the, in the water. Uh, he's succeeded in kidnapping Namorita, uh, presumably because he wants to use her as leverage against Namor. So Ms. Marvel decides... Well, I I need some kind of I need some help. I, you know, I, I don't know where he's gone, so she's going to go to Avengers Mansion. And as happens so many times in comic books where heroes meet each other, they fight. Yep. So, so apparently she she just lets herself into Avengers Mansion and has a quick battle with the Avengers before cooler heads prevail, and she's able to convince them that 
hey, listen, Avengers, I'm another good guy, and I just had a battle with Tiger Shark, and he's just kidnapped Namor's cousin, and I really need to access your lab so that I can get him. And, uh, well, they say, okay, we believe you. (laughs) So she uh, does two things which are really interesting. One, she makes a sensor module that uh, allows her to track Namorita's jewelry, a piece of her jewelry, and she makes herself a pill that can make her an underwater breather. Um, and I, I, I guess this, again, we've seen this a couple of times from Ms. Marvel in the earlier volume, is that she has incredible Cree knowledge. We, presumably, she had made her original costume out of Cree technology. That costume actually gave her her powers in the first few issues before the uh, effects of the psychomagnetron imbued her body with the powers. Um, but she is presumably very, very technologically able, and we, we see that here. We, we don't necessarily, it's not a big point of her character, but uh, every once in a while as a plot device, when it, she needs to invent something great, she's able to. So, yeah, um, well, my problem is that it is just that. It's a, it's a plot device, and it only comes out, because otherwise I think her, her mind or her talents are wasted as editor for this magazine. Right. Um, <laughs> Like she should yeah. be doing. She could be Reed Richards. She she could be making the world a better place by like I don't know, <laughs> inventing so much awesome stuff. Right. So she's got this incredible technology or the ability to create technology, and of course her her seventh sense, which again is a plot device. But yeah. what can you do? It's it's part of her. So she tells the Avengers who who say, "Hey, can we help you?" And she's like, "No, I'm going to be underwater." Uh, now I, I know I've seen adventures of the Avengers where they have underwater gear, but uh, you know, again, we'll just call it plot device that <laughs> she needs. She needs to go solo. So um, she tracks them down and has a big battle with Tiger Shark underwater, uh, trying to save Namorita. And she gets to a point where her pill is going to wear off, and she has to make the decision to say. Am I going to save myself or am I going to sacrifice myself and eventually drown to save Namorita? And she chooses to save Namorita, which that would have been an excellent time to call back her Salia Petri decision, yeah. you know, where she decided to let her, her friend die. But it's neither here nor there. She decides to sacrifice herself. But this uh, one's a little bit different because she's wondering if she was going to put her own life in front of somebody else's. With the Salia Petri situation, she's not deciding with her own life. She's deciding if she saves those innocents or that innocent over there. You make a good point. I think it was going to be a, a world domination problem if she saved Salia Petri yeah. uh, with, the, with the, the Scarlet Scarab or something. Right. So you're right. This is a little bit of easier decision to make. Um, lucky for her, after she overcomes Tiger Shark and then she presumably is ready to meet her end, Namorita has freed herself and saves Ms. Marvel and says, hey, thanks for saving me. Uh, right back at you, Ms. Marvel. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I found like the wrap up of this issue was really fast. Yeah, they they, they I, tied things up really quickly in one page, basically. It's like they it's, ran out um, of space. Yeah, and definitely, uh, I feel like it, Claremont had story ideas that you know, obviously, in the last volume, he's 
he's peppered a few mysterious things. Like there's the 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 burglary at Ms. Marble's apartment. They were trying to get something secret from Ms. Marble's apartment. Right. Uh, the the attack on her office, where Frank Gianelli recognizes the attacker and then decides that uh, that he's not going to tell the police. You know who the attacker is and and even in this issue here we see a mysterious woman um who i i'm assuming turns out to be mystique where ms marvel i think is about to jump in the water and she's flying over a tanker and as she flies over a tanker there's a mysterious woman that says ms marvel here in the mid-atlantic but why right, uh, what yeah. matter she can't be aware of me yet you know so that has to be mystique there, which we don't, we never get confirmation, but I, I think that's pretty, pretty fair. I think it's safe to say, to say that that's, yep. yeah, that's interesting. But I'm with I, you. I, this, I hadn't noticed that. This issue gets, gets wrapped up pretty tidily in a bow and uh, Claremont wants to move on with his, with his storyline. Uh, yeah, this was a pretty good start to the book. It was a lot of, I like the underwater battle. The, the action was nice. Um, I, I think Jim Mooney did a good job of, drawing uh just the the underwater battle the the sense of weightlessness and uh he even put little touches like when she comes out of her water her hair is is flat and, and you know it looks like it's wet yeah it's very i i give him credit there's a lot of flowing you know weightless hair in the in the battle yeah um so it's 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 pretty good um of course you also get a, a battle with a giant squid which is always awesome that's pretty cool yeah um <laughs> yeah it, and this this book is other than the quick snippet where she creates her gear to track tiger shark this is a big long battle underwater well we can move on to issue number 17 it's called shadow of the gun and in this one, rogue shield agents Ballard and Raven use shield tech to get at Mar- Miss Marvel. Um, Ballard and Ballard and Raven are these two characters that I guess this is the first time we're meeting them, right? I can't remember if they were in the first volume or not. Well, Raven, I think the first time we saw her was the just the last issue, right? Uh, right. And Ballard, we did see he was the guy that broke into the office, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that Frank Gianelli kind of knows. So these two, we find we find out that they are working kind of behind the scenes. Now, at first, we think Ballard is working with Nick Fury. But we find out quickly that Nick Fury is actually being uh, being portrayed by by Mystique. She's mm-hmm. she's a shapeshifter. Well, we don't know her name is Mystique yet. She's only Raven, right? Uh, and she's a shapeshifter. This is I don't know what you would call Mystique's first appearance. If you call this her first appearance, or if you call the last issue her first appearance, or if you call her when she f- reveals her true form for the first time, her first appearance. Yeah, I feel like the collector's world goes with her true form. Yeah, I think so. But this is technically sort of the first real glimpse of her as a character. Mm-hmm. We find out her abilities. We find out her personality. Uh, she is she will take on any sort of form, and she's actually very good at improvising to get out of situations and stuff like that. Right. And right down to the eye retinal scan, she's able to copy yeah, it that well. Very well, and and also voice patterns. Mm-hmm. So she's very, very good at her job. Um, we don't know at this point that she's a mutant. We just know that uh, that she shapeshifts, basically. Yeah, and she's out to get Miss Marvel. Yep. So in this one, we also see a roommate, I guess, of Miss Marvel's. As she's maybe I don't know. She's found an apartment. It doesn't really say. 
or if she's just bunking with Arabella. I think this was in issue, the first issue of this volume, I think she's apartment shopping, and I think Arabella is the neighbor. Okay, so she's found a place now. Mm-hmm. Okay, they kind of they kind of skip over that, and uh, so I guess we just have to assume that you know she went through the right. whole <laughs> renting process <She's> got, right <laughs> between issues. Um, but yeah, Arabella has red hair, kind of looks like Mary Jane, and it's Definitely. a good thing that Mary Jane is not in this book anymore. Otherwise, I would confuse the two. Yeah, me too. But this was this was a fun issue. I especially like at the very end, just a good character moment where. Um, Frank and Carol, where everybody starts having a, a snowball fight. And yes. it's just kind of a good moment between Carol and, and Frank. Yeah, where he, he, he plants a kiss on her, which I thought, I mean, I she's his boss, I think, right? Yes, technically, yeah. Yeah. So it seems a little weird. It's also, actually, you know what? This this scene is kind of weird because it's like she's telling him to get off of her, let, let her up, and he's not doing it, and then he kisses her. And I don't right. know if if that is seen these days as really not appropriate. <laughs> I, I think it's fair to say it would be seen as not appropriate. Yeah. Um, she doesn't seem to mind so much. And you can, and, and I have read the first volume of the trade paperback of the Captain Marvel series. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think Frank in any ways, in the early issues of the Captain Marvel series, Frank seems to have a, a romantic relation with her still. Okay. Um, That's good. I wasn't, sure if, uh, wasn't sure if he was going to stick around or not. Yeah. Anyway, this one ends on a cliffhanger, and uh, she is targeted by a gun and is shot. It's the gun that uh, the shield, the rogue shield agents were putting together before. That leads us into our next issue, number 18. 18 with the title St. Valentine's Day Avengers Massacre. Uh, another Jim Mooney penciled issue. Uh, I Just really quick, I want to say the we get a Dave Cockrum cover, which I thoroughly enjoy. I'm a big fan of Cockrum. Yeah. So uh, in this issue, we see that the, the attack that Ms. Marvel 7th Sense had been warning her about for the last couple issues actually happens now. And it is um, that Jeffrey Ballard, who Frank Gianelli knows to be like a CIA secret operative, and he knows him from Vietnam days. Um, and Jeffrey Ballard is working with Mystique, and he's put on this armor that they stole from S.H.I.E.L.D. to get rid of Ms. Marvel. Luckily for her, in the midst of the attack, uh, Wasp and Scarlet Witch happen to be shopping and uh, see the attack. So they get in on the fight, and they call the Avengers together. Uh, so Jeffrey Ballard was ready to take on Ms. Marvel, but he was not ready to take on, essentially, the entire Aven- Avengers squad. So he now becomes distracted, and um, Ms. Marvel is able to figure out that he's tracking her. Well, he, she takes a guess. Maybe he's tracking me based on my Cree technology costume so let's try to turn off my costume and see if he's able to track me anymore and she guessed correctly that he was tracking her that way so she's able to sneak up on him in a improvised costume and uh, eventually eventually defeat him with the avengers help i really see this as a huge huge flaw in the design of this this tech <laughs> to, to the point where it's like the vision um i don't know there's just 
the your your visor really renders these people invisible if they're not wearing their superhero costumes. <laughs> like it's just kind of like a yes. you think that you'd still be able to kind of see properly and maybe I don't know. So like Miss Marvel shows up in just a black leotard, right? And the guy can't can't see her very well because she's not because it's not picking up her Miss Marvel costume. Right. It's able to sneak up on her. Yeah. So um I like the inker in this issue. His name is Ricardo Villamonte. And, yes. And I really feel like he he steps up Jim Mooney's art a little bit more. Um, it kind of almost reminds me of a Tom Palmer-ish kind of inking style. Very Tom Palmer, very uh, not sketchy lines, but the, the lines that, that work, they're not bold. They're kind of thin, but they work well. Yeah, I just see a lot of like feathering in his yes. inking style and that kind of stuff, which is definitely what Tom Palmer is known for. Now, Ricardo Villamonte, I know him because he famously inked an issue of X-Men. And this is really awesome. I, I won't have the number off the top of my head. And maybe when you, when you post this episode to the Facebook page, I'll, I'll leave a comment. He, he inked an issue of X-Men where the X-Men were in Japan and there was, it was a Sunfire uh, appearance. <laughs> and when he got the penciled pages back, he had assumed that Wolverine was Beast. So he essentially inked Wolverine as Beast and often tried to fix Wolverine's face. Oh, wow. And um, so, man, I wish I could remember that number, but he, we'll, we'll share it when he, he posts this. And, he, when you, and it's in one of the epic volumes as well. You, you can see it clearly that he, he basically makes Wolverine into Beast. I'm looking it up. It's Uncanny X-Men number 118. Yeah, it's awesome. I'll, I'll post some, some pictures from that to the That's Facebook so page funny. When, you, when you post that. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's awesome. But he's a good inker. Uh, he definitely, yeah. you can see his style coming through, uh, even, yeah, just coming through Jim Mooney's pencils. So very good stuff. In the middle of the story, we get a couple of uh, pages that tease upcoming um, storylines, I'll say. One is we see Mystique in full mystique garb for the first time um and she is answering to a she is a subordinate of someone and she addresses him as lord um right. and he's basically chastising her saying hey knock it off with this ms marvel stuff you're 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 jeopardizing our plans so we kind of get the hint that mystique is is really got it in for Ms. Marvel, and it's something personal, and it's really irking her boss. Um, now, here in this aspect, I don't know that we ever will find out who this boss truly is. Um, I have some theory. This is where I have some theories as to who the boss is. I I feel like I have a good handle on why she has it in for Ms. Marvel, but we'll get to that later. Uh, the other page, opposite this page, sixty-nine, we we get a tease that the supreme intelligence of the Kree is has some kind of plan up his sleeve as well. Yeah, uh, and there's also planting the seeds for a costume change as well. Yeah, because when she gets into the black leotard, she makes comments like, "I I feel much more free in this one." Like she likes that her shoulders are exposed because it gives her more freedom of of uh, movement. Yeah, they're warming us up. They're warming, they're warming us, up. us up to the change. <laughs> At first, if I were reading this in the 70s, I would mm -hmm. think that maybe Mystique was actually a Skrull. Good point, except for when she shows her true... But who's to say that that's her true form? On page 68. Yeah, fair enough. Those Skrulls, I feel like they're always who they're impersonating or their Skrull face. And in and, and this one, it's if, if she were impersonating this person, they're all blue. 
Yeah, yeah. But her, I think her design is cool, really cool. It is, and I like how it's pretty much stayed untouched through the years. Yeah. And she still still kind of looks like how she does here. Yeah, it's pretty good design. A couple other things here. Carol, I love the scene where Carol throws Wonder Man because they can't decide how to how to attack Centurion. And <laughs> Carol's like, they're, they're just standing awesome. around arguing. <laughs> she just picks him up and throws him. <laughs> yes. And you know what? We do get in this another example of where she jury rigs together some tech to create a trap. Right. Um, yeah, that's true. That that she's really a technological marvel that, that kind of goes unplayed. Yeah, it does. Uh, okay, one more comment here. I just want to note that th- with this issue, Miss Marvel has now gone bi-monthly, and that's never a good sign for a comic. Nope. When they have to change the schedule to have fewer issues in a year, so the end is is near. End is near. Yeah. Moving right along to Ms. Marvel number 19. This one's called Mirror, Mirror, and Ronin. So I guess there's a lot of stuff going on in the Captain Marvel comic series at this point because we kind of come into these characters who who are in a small farmland in Texas, and they I don't know if they don't have their own memories or if they are just hanging out there. They're like pre-undercover people that are... For some reason, they're working on this Texas ranch. I don't. And yeah, I don't know if they are like uh, sort of like a, at a safe house of some sort. Maybe they're hiding from yeah. somebody. But we have Macron and Minerva, who was in the Captain Marvel movie, and also Ronan, who of course people would probably hopefully know from the right. Guardians of the Galaxy. And yeah, they're all hiding there. Ronan gets his memories back or something, and decides that he needs to go after um, Ms. Marvel and judge her. Or accuse her, I guess. Accuse her of something, of being a traitor. And uh, they have a big battle. This whole issue is kind of one big long fight. And it's kind of cool because we go through a bunch of different, uh, uh, I don't know, internal internal thoughts and internal dialogue that, that kind of goes through Carol's li- life as in her younger years and as she's yes. transformed into Miss Marvel for the first time and that kind of stuff. It acts as a flashback to get us up to speed, but also helps inform a little bit more of her character because we find out more of the dynamics between her family members, especially with her dad, which we kind of knew about in the last volume. But yes, and I and I I assume since you know the cover is such a big Captain Marvel Ms. Marvel cover that if they're hoping that Captain Marvel readers who are not reading Ms. Marvel they're catching them up to speed and hoping to keep them. Oh, actually, yeah, that's a very good point. Yes, since mm-hmm. Captain Marvel is guest starring, we might as well let people know everything about Ms. Marvel at the time. So, yeah, right. it takes up a, a huge chunk of the issue, actually. So, it in does. fact, not a whole lot happens in this issue. Uh, it's just basically a fight between uh, Ronan and Carol, and that's about it. Yeah, it's essentially that, uh, that Ronan wants to kidnap her for the supreme intelligence because of her hybrid dna he hopes to make her the mother of a new race of kree oh yeah right is essentially which you know that sounds like a pretty comic book villain plan and it's the supreme intelligence that sends him right right so the the supreme intelligence wants to create this new race of kree right so that's kind of an interesting thing there um so this is where she does away with her old costume. Um, I think I mentioned in the 
previous episode that once Claremont gets the reins of Miss Marvel, he takes away slowly one by one every single aspect of Miss Marvel's character that Jerry Conway had established in the first couple of issues. And yes. this costume is just another aspect of that. And pretty soon, we, like throughout this volume, he keeps on taking away one thing at a time until the very end. Miss Marvel has nothing, is nothing like what she was before. In a sense, right. like she still is very similar, but everything is different at the same time. Yeah. So also, um, now that you've told me that they put these flashbacks in here for the sake of new readers who would be jumping on because of Captain Marvel, now we're going to enter a new phase in Miss Marvel. This is a transition issue to capture everybody. So once they, they hook people coming from Captain the Captain Marvel fans, they introduce us to the all-new Miss Marvel in issue number 20. Yes, they promise a new costume, new thrills, and new excitement. What did you think of the art in this in this issue? Yeah, this one's Carmine Infantino, right? Yes. Yeah. Not my favorite, but it, I do like Bob McCloud. I think he's an excellent artist, and uh, the two of them together, it's not bad. Yeah, so I remember there's one issue that Carmine Infantino did in the last volume, and he had a very specific inker on that one. I don't rem- remember who it was, but mm-hmm. it gave him his art a lot of weight because Carmine is pretty style- stylized compared to yes. a lot of... Very wispy. Yeah, a lot of artists who are in the 70s here. Bob McCloud is another one of those inkers that puts a, a lot of his own work into the artwork. And so you can see you can see his, his hand come out, especially in, uh, I think, in Faces. And uh, if you look at the farm workers in the early, in the second page or something. Right. He, he, he's the guy behind the New Mutants. And if you remember what how he drew new mutants and such, you can kind of see, you can see his work come out. Uh, yeah, I loved his art in this new mutants. Well. Definitely, really good stuff. And the cover, the cover it looks like they John Romita Jr. But the face on Captain Marvel looks a little bit like Cockrum. Cockrum, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, the face and the hair look a little Cockrum to me. Which so I wonder if Cockrum was doing some uh, some edits. Yeah, could be. Ms. Marvel 20. It's the all-new Ms. Marvel. And the, right away, we get the awesome splash page of the awesome new costume, and we find out that it, too, is made of unstable molecules, so she can make it appear and disappear at, at will. Uh, we also find out that Janet Van Dyne, the Wasp, had a hand in designing the style of it. And the story starts out with Frank Ginelli letting Carol know that their co-worker, Sharon Cole has gone missing in New Mexico. So Carol goes to New Mexico to investigate, and she's kind of stonewalled by the military. They essentially say, hey, don't worry about it. <laughs> and Carol goes out into the desert with a with a sergeant from the police department and um, is ambushed by a race of lizard people. A battle ensues. She holds her own against the lizard people until one of the lizard people whose power it is to mesmerize uh, essentially takes her out of the fight and she's captured. I really like these lizard people. The designs are great. Uh Cockrum is just fantastic at drawing reptiles. Yeah. I was not aware of I mean I he, they, they all look great and you can tell they all have their basis in actual it's not just a generic dinosaur, a generic, you know, reptile. There, you know, you can see that there's a gecko here or you can see that there's a bearded dragon or you can see that there's the you know, the particular and, species yeah. of actual lizards, which is really cool. It's very cool. Yeah, and and it, the fight between 
the the main lizard and and Carol is just fantastic as well. Uh, they both use their own powers and their own assets uh, mm-hmm. really, really, really well. Um, the and the when they start involving like throwing around tanks and stuff is really awesome. Right. So a couple things. Um, one, I wish I could re- now. If you look at page ninety-eight and ninety-nine, where Carol is in New Mexico talking with the police department. Carol's shirt is tied up just around her, her bosom there. You know, she's got a, a right. exposed stomach. Yep. I swear, I do remember reading something where it might have been Stan Lee who looked at the pages and said, make her look sexier. But I, I do remember hearing that. And when I read this, I was like, oh, this has to be it. It is. Because yeah, yeah. we've already seen that they made the, the costume, you know, they took away the bare midriff and such. And it just seemed weird that Carol, who, you know, and this look is fine as it is, but it just doesn't match who she is. You know, she's a professional. She's an adventurer. Why, why yeah. does she look like she's, you know, Daisy Duke? You know? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So now this is what I want to talk about, the costume. Okay. First of all, I love the costume, right? The Cochrane design, the the tall, the thigh-length boots and the sash, which are both major Cochranisms when you come to costume design. And I maintain that this costume is blue. Okay. And I know that I do have some supporters, and I feel like most people will say it's, it's black. But I, I would say if we take a look at the color scheme of the old Ms. Marvel costume, would you say that it's red and blue and yellow or black and red and yellow? I would probably say blue. Right. So why wouldn't her new costume be the same color scheme? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I I would say the same thing, the same argument could be made about Spider-Man's costume in the Steve Ditko era. Right. It's, it's pretty much black and red, and they use now, the blue I say highlights. This. In the extras for this, when we we're, we I think we Chris Claremont writes uh, the remaking of Ms. Marvel, he talks about how Stan said, make the costume all black. So that's definitely an argument that the costume is black. But I still feel like I feel like this earliest version of this costume is blue because she wanted to keep her color scheme. I also argue that if you take a look at the back cover of this epic volume number two, and yep. you'll see that Yellow Jacket, who we know is black and yellow, his black is black with gray highlights. And Ms. Marvel here, she's got a blue costume. It's kind of blue highlights that is to represent blue. Yeah. Um, but there are different shades of black in, in fabrics and in everything you could get. Without a doubt. That have and a obviously highlight. we always talk about Superman's hair, which is Superman's hair is the same color as this. It's yeah. right, black with blue highlights. And right. we know that it's not blue hair. <laughs> we know it's black. Um, but I would say in later volumes of Avengers, you know, in the 2000s when Kurt Busiek and George Perez were drawing it and Ms. Marvel or Warbird, as Carol was known then, She's in this costume, but I, I swear that they draw her or they color her with gray highlights so that 100% that's a black costume. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I could see that too. Yeah. Well. It's, it's in the eye of the beholder, I'm going to say, but <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm, you can put me in the blue camp. I think I might be in the minority, but I've got my arguments laid out. Okay. So if you go to page number 98... Mm-hmm. We, are, we are. We were on this page just a second ago, right at the very beginning. In the text, at in the first panel, the narrator is telling us that Carol ha- and Jonah Jameson are butting heads because she's trying to get him to send. Her, she, she's trying to get him to send her to Kennedy Airport, a flight out of Kennedy Airport, mm-hmm. and he's like, "No, no, no, that's going to cost you money, too much money. You have a responsibility here, all that kind of stuff." He's not happy with her. 
Claremont is now planting the seeds for something that's going to come up in, in in a couple of issues. Yes. So yeah, just like he did with costume, kind of planting the costume change ahead of time, he's doing this too. So it's not it's not a shock if you've been paying attention that the thing that's going to happen in the future is going to happen. Right. And honestly, I'm surprised it took as long as it did to happen. Yeah, really. <laughs> After reading volume one. That's true, because he never liked her from the outset. Right. And, and this was at, at points where she would black out and not even know what she was doing the past five hours. Right. And then she also had people who were, like her own employees were trying to scheme against her as well. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Heading over to issue number 21, The Devil in the Dark. This one is another that is drawn by Cockrum, but this time it's inked by Al Milgram. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about the inkers a lot in these issues, and I, Mil- Milgram is hit or miss for me. Sometimes he's great. Sometimes he's not. And even in this issue, there are times when he is great and other times where he is not as great. Um, for instance, he inks these lizard people really well. But if you go to issue number 124 and you see this face of Carol in the shadows in the in the center, um, I'm just not on board with his inking style. Like he, he uses a lot of very yeah. kind of thick shadows, blocky lines and that kind of stuff. And, and that's Al Milgram for sure. He has a very thick brush a lot of the time. That I'm not a fan of. I I, agree. I I contend that that Al Milgram at this point, especially in the in the late seventies, early eighties, was really just about making as much money as he could. Yes. And I don't begrudge him that. I know. I think I had read that he was a salaried artist, so he he got a salary, he got uh, medical benefits, you know, which was awesome for for a, an artist, and he had a a quota. He had to you know, create X amount of pages per month to, to stay salaried. For the salaried artist, anything beyond those X amount was just basically making overtime. You know, it was just extra cash. And that's where he made the real money. And how can you crank out 40 to 60 pages a month? you got to be quick. Yeah, right. You know, uh, because the first time, the earliest Al Milgram art I saw was in the epic collection of Master of Kung Fu, one of those issues was penciled by Al Milgram. And I swear, if, if you look at that issue, you would have sworn it was drawn by Jim Starlin. It's just yeah. great. It's just the detail is wonderful. And, oh, uh, yeah. I know that he can be great. I've see, right. yeah, definitely seen really great. But really I think awesome he's also got a very, the capability to go very fast. And yeah. that art is just completely different. And I, again, I don't begrudge him because he's taking care of his family. Yep. But yep. Uh, artistically, it's not my favorite. Totally. Did you like this race of lizard people? Sorry, I guess we haven't really even... I haven't even given a little recap here. So Carol is <laughs> taken underground, and she is thrown in a like a cave and, and discovers all of the other people who have gone missing. For un, some unexplained reason, all of their clothes were taken, and they were just left with like little loincloths. They're very Planet of the Apes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Not exactly sure why. In fact, actually, you know, Planet of the Apes, that's... That's a good analogy because that would have come out right. um, like through the 70s. They were making Planet of the Apes movies. Yeah. And, and at this time, the, the reruns of the movies were on, on, you know, the afternoon movie show when, when you'd get out of after school and watch movies on TV. Yeah. It's probably very influenced by Planet of the Apes. This whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Though I got to say, I, I feel like I read this issue twice. I didn't really get why they kept the people. Right. I think they talk about how they massacred some of the soldiers, and they definitely say they don't want the outside world to know of their existence, which is why they're not letting them go, but they don't really say why they keep them alive. 
No, their whole race, I don't understand kind of their purpose either. It's I find this to be the way with many underground civilizations. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we know that they hate the surface or that they're afraid of the surface for some reason. Lizards, I can understand um, because they, I don't know, they burrow and, and go underground anyway. Right. But yeah, there's not really any real motivation for what they are doing. Um, now, these guys were not part of that big underground storyline that you guys just covered in the Avengers Epic Collection. No, uh, they're not. Yeah, they're they're a completely different species. But they were definitely... This story came out before then, but I guess they're not considered a true... Maybe these guys are just hiding in caves. They're not truly subterranean, maybe. Well, no, no, no. They have a huge uh, oh, yeah, ecosystem you're right. and, uh, and all of the... They have towers of... What did they say... Uh, on page 118, it's incredible. The main cavern must be more than a mile across and higher than the Sears Tower, yet this city fills it. So yeah. they have yeah, you're a right. huge city. They are definitely an underground <laughs> society. They, maybe they're so secretive that they d- didn't even let the other subterranean races know they were around. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Or they just didn't like their um, their plan, so they decided not to opt in to uh, right. take over. <laughs> Uh, yeah, whatever it was. But and so the ending is a little amusing as well. Carol Danvers gets a gift who is from the uh, the head lizard guy and it's a pet lizard. Seems weird yeah. that the lizards capture the humans and keep them in cages and then as a gift to Carol, they give Carol one of their own kind of species right. so that Carol can keep it in a cage. <laughs> I, I thought you immediately at this last page uh, a racketeer, I think, maybe is his is his name, the leader's name. Yeah. How does he mail this to her, right? Or maybe <laughs> he doesn't mail it to her. Maybe, but he he has to send an agent to get it in her house, right? Yeah. Right. And I mean, they get like an actual like you know glass case for the. I don't know. I, <laughs> it's just, it just seems so weird and so just out of left field. Like they could have not had that ending at all, but but they did, and it's weird. And we I don't think we ever see her little lizard friend again. We don't. No, that's too bad. No. <laughs> um, yeah, and also a racketeer knows Carol Danvers' secret identity. Right. So yeah, a bunch of weird questions there. Yes, exactly. How do explained. how would he even know that? Yep. Yep. Uh. Unless he's mesmerized people to doing that kind of stuff for him or delivering the package or uh, telling secrets. I don't know. Anyway, now we come up to a little diversion. Uh, We have a couple of issues of Marvel Team-Up. Marvel Mm -hmm. Team-Up number 66 and number 67. It's called If Not For Love. So this is Marvel Team-Up of Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. And again, I feel like many issues of Marvel team up and Marvel two and one start out in just this aspect and that it's New York city and our heroes are just doing their thing and their, their paths cross in this instance, uh, Dr. Strange's orb of Agamatu, uh, he acts up and, um, releases demons that attack Clea. He calls, uh, to Wong to assist him. And Wong is, had been grocery shopping and he drops his groceries and goes to help the good doctor uh, and noticing this are Peter Parker and Carol Danvers. So I think that that piques their interest and they follow Wong to say, hey, what's going on? And obviously when they get there, they find that uh, Dr. Strange and Clea have been attacked and uh, they decide, well, we can probably help out as Spider-Man and Ms. Marvel. Um, the good doctor says, yeah, sure, I could use your help because the, the orb of Ogamatu has captured Clea 
and uh, I've been mailed these tarot cards. So let's go find out who mailed these tarot cards to me and see what's what. So they, they go to New Orleans where they meet the Witch Queen of New Orleans who essentially tells uh, Dr. Strange that uh, Clea has been kidnapped and there's some kind of magical whatnot or hubbub that he's got to do to to free her and we'll find out what happens with that in the next issue now at one point when dr strange is reaching out to wong he says clea attacked me come quickly and but then that isn't actually what happened and it's never really it's not really addressed after that either like wong goes to them but never like once clea's revived he never questions yeah, um, it's a good point. Like, it was a, a demon that came out of the orb that looked like it attacked them both. Yeah. Now, in the next issue, there yeah. is the aspect where there is a, an evil Clea, but you're right, it, it wasn't this issue. Yeah. So I don't know why uh, why he said that or why Wong's response wasn't any wasn't different. But, yeah, I don't know. Kind of weird. Uh, this is... I find that this issue seems a little just disjointed. Yeah. Um, there's just a, a lot of things kind of being thrown against the wall all of a sudden. And it's it's hard to it's hard to just figure out who the players are even. I, I wasn't a fan of these two these two Marvel team up issues. Now a lot of this has its origins actually in the Steve Englehart Doctor Strange run in mm-hmm. the seventies because the Silver Dagger, who is the main villain in this storyline is taken directly from that. His story starts right. in, in Englehart, and that's found in the uh, Epic Collection Volume 3 called A Separate Reality. That's the only way I knew who the Silver Dagger was, yeah. was through that Epic Collection. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. This There is just something, something pun intended, something strange about this issue. Um, and I feel like this is the problem with a lot of Marvel team-ups is that they're just they just force the characters into the situation together. Yeah. And Miss Marvel and Spider-Man are not equipped to do this kind of battle yet they stick around anyway. Right. Right. They 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 definitely have a purpose in the next issue and it's really no more than just to fight henchmen, but Yeah. That's it. <laughs> right. They don't yeah, once once they get to Doctor Strange's sanctum um, or no, once he takes them to, they, to they, New Orleans, yeah, to New Orleans, they he puts them in a disguise and they don't do anything. They just kind of right. sit there. They're just with him. I think they, they basically are going to watch his his body as his ethereal, you know, goes into the the orb. I guess. Yeah. I mean, they do serve a purpose. They they protect him against the henchmen. Okay, so Marvel team up number seventy seven: Spider Man and Miss Marvel, and also Doctor Strange. This one is called If I Am to Live, My Love Must Die. Uh, we didn't mention that the art is by Howard Chaikin, which we don't see him yeah. very much in the Marvel Universe, so that's kind of cool. Right, and I felt like uh, it was all right. It wasn't great. It wasn't what I've come to know of Howard Chaikin, but uh Howard Chaikin, is, he's way more of a down-to-earth guy. He, he's really kind of a, he's a nitty-gritty kind of an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think of his American flag work, like right. that's that's what he's known for. But then this issue, he does cosmic, which I feel is not usually his his game. Like that's not yeah. what he usually does. So he might, that might be why it just turns out to be a little bit okay because he's right. It's just out of his out of his comfort zone, perhaps. But mm-hmm. um, he does a he does a fair job once they get into this battle. There are some visually cool things that he plays around with with the eth- ethereal form, the way he plays off the light and shadows. 
Uh, in this issue, Silver Dagger. So this whole plot has been uh, a ploy to get Doctor Strange close enough so that some of his power can be used to bring Silver Dagger back. Because back in the Doctor Strange issues, Doctor Strange has trapped Silver Dagger. I think I was it. I think in the orb of. Now you, okay. you yeah, say, I'm guessing. You say Agamatu, and I say Agamotto, and I don't know which one is correct, but. <laughs> 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 That's part of what I enjoy. Like when I see either a Marvel cartoon or a Marvel movie. And I know it's just, you know, the director deciding how that's going to be pronounced, but, you know, uh, then I then I have an idea, you know. Yeah, I, right. Dormammu, Dormammu is what he said in the movie, you know. Yeah. Um, but I've heard Dormammu, and, uh, right. and, and, you know, as a kid, it was Magneto was the enemy of the X-Men until the cartoons came along and made him Magneto. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was never sure about that one myself until the 90s cartoon came out. Yeah. And uh, Doctor Strange, he makes up a lot of words. He has so many different spells. And like, oh, I think Mkron or Macron is another one. Uh, oh, yeah. We don't know how that one's pronounced. I no. think I've heard it both ways in different TV shows, in fact. Um, and so, yeah. So there's one page here on page 157 where Doctor Strange meets up with this caterpillar that looks like the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland. Right. That is actually um, Agamotto himself. Ah, interesting. Yeah, that's revealed in in the Engelhart run. That's that's who that is. <laughs> they they don't spend a whole lot to, lot of time. You can only get to him if you go inside the orb, and that's where he is now. That's how he knows he's inside the orb because Agamotto's there. Ah, mm. uh, boy. So mo- much of this issue is ethereal form Doctor Strange fighting against evil demonic form of Clea while uh, Miss Marvel and Spider-Man take out Silver Dagger. And then eventually um, there's this other character that appeared in the last issue that we didn't even mention. What was her name? The, um, she's a the witch. witch Queen of the New witch, Orleans, yeah, the witch also queen. known as Marie Laveau. And she was, we thought she was a good guy, but then she's actually in, being controlled by Silver Dagger. and right. But then she's actually a good guy in the end after all. Uh, or is she is a big question at the end. So <laughs> it's kind of just raises a whole bunch of questions. <laughs> but yeah, so did you like this issue any better than the first part? Not terribly. Um, and, and I wonder if it, the, the magical stories and the, you know, mystic realms are never usually my, uh, my jam. So that might be what I hold against it. But yeah. it, it wasn't really, you know what, I, it's still Marvel. I like it, but it wasn't, wasn't my favorite. No. And in fact, if it weren't for the fact that these epic collections are so skinny, they didn't need to include these two issues at all. Right. But I'm glad they did. Yeah, I'm glad they did too. But you're right. I, I could have read everything without having known that story. Yeah, and it's it's totally fine. They do reference Miss Marvel's new costume. Like, Spider-Man doesn't recognize her because of the new costume. Right. And almost starts a fight yeah. <laughs> over it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I like that exchange too. It's like, how yes. do I know you're really her? He's right. like, well, how do I know you're really Spider-Man? You're just wearing a yeah. costume too. <laughs> That's a good point. How many times has the chameleon been Spider-Man? Or, yeah, right. What have you? So yeah, nice exchange there. But uh, but yeah, overall, um, I'm glad it's here just because it's nice to have that content available if people want to read it, but right. it wasn't necessary. Nope. So let's move on to rejoin let's do it. back to the regular, uh, back to our regular story. Ms. Marvel number 22 is entitled Second Chance. Uh, Mike Vosberg and Mike Zeck are the artists. Uh, we've got a great Cockrum and Austin cover yeah. in this issue. 
Now, this one, it credits Mike Vosberg and Mike Zek just as artists. We don't right. know who's doing what necessarily or if one's inking. I think Mike Zek was inker back then. But then some of these pages, like page 172, that completely yeah, that looks, looks like, like Zek. Mike Zek. Completely. And then page 173. Yes, the faces, especially in the forms. Yeah. 173 looks like it's half Zek and half Vosberg. Like um, the bottom half looks like like Vosberg. Then you turn right. the page and like it's all Vosberg. And it, it, it switches back and forth. So you can play a, a guessing game. I feel like game. there's times where there's no delineation between the eyes and skin around the eyes and the mask. Um, and then there's times where the, the mask goes all the way to her, her eye. You know, there, the, you don't, can't see. And I wonder if maybe that's a Vosberg trait as opposed to a Zek trait. Yeah, it could be. But there's definitely shared shared stuff going on here. Yes. So this story opens with Ms. Marvel or Carol finally getting the axe at uh, Woman Magazine. Yep. J. Joe Jameson fires her. And, um, you know, as I'm first reading this, I, I felt for her. But you quickly learn from reading that, that she actually has more relief um, from it. Yeah, I, I, yeah. So you kind of feel good for her, uh, that it's actually a good thing. So she uh, says, okay, well, I'll get my stuff later. I'm going to go to the roof and just fly around a little bit. And she's immediately attacked by Deathbird. And a battle ensues, and she wonders, geez, Deathbird, is she still in cahoots with Modoc? And before you realize it, Deathbird is gone, you know? She has a quick attack and leaves, and leaves Ms. Marvel kind of wondering, yeah, what the heck was that all about? Um, she goes back to her place and is surprised by... There's essentially a, a party, um, which I'm guessing was arranged by Frank Gianelli. And um, there's all sorts of people at the party. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to the party later. Um, but we find out that Deathbird has a plan, and she's stealing some Stark technology from the, from the docks. Carol, having the seventh sense, realizes that Deathbird is up to no good, and she decides to thwart her plan. An epic battle ensues between the two, and essentially ends when some of the collateral damage from the battle, there's a bridge that gets destroyed, and there's a car with a dad and a daughter, which falls and is now burning, and Carol is torn. She's got to hold up a piece of the bridge to stop it from crushing the car, but how can she hold up this piece of the bridge and save them from burning to death? And luckily for her, Deathbird decides to help her. She says, I've got no issue with those people in the car. It's you I want to destroy. So Deathbird holds up the piece of the bridge. She lets Carol uh, free the dad and the daughter. And then, of course, Deathbird lets the bridge drop on Carol. Yeah. And uh, thinking that she's finished off Ms. Marble, she flies away. But, of course, uh, Ms. Marble is harder to kill than that. So I actually feel kind of bad for Deathbird now that I know that her only plan is that she wants to get home. Yeah. She, she just wants to get off this planet. And that's why right. she's doing everything that she's doing. And if only she, she she's communicate a, pawn for a little bit. Yeah. Yes. If only she communicate to Carol, like Carol has a brilliant mind and could probably come up with something that could get her off this planet. Uh, and 100%. she wouldn't have to be a villain. So it's kind of a it's kind of a sad state right here that she that Deathbird kind of resorts to villainy um, as a way to try and get her get herself home. Though I will say, as you learn more about Deathbird in the pages of X-Men, you kind of feel that even if she she had a way home, she'd be kind of, you know, they, obviously she's she's a, a pawn at this point in yeah. the pages of Ms. Marvel for just for that reason. But when she does get where she wants to go, she's no she's no nicer. <laughs> yeah. 
here's another issue where I felt like they kind of wrapped things up really, really fast. Um, yes. This last panel, in fact, where it's a close-up of her face, she's saying she's addressing the people that she just saved, and Claremont has to put in a couple of balloons there just to kind of wrap things up in two sentences. And then there's a, it just says the end. There's not even a, hey, next time or coming up right. next or anything like that. It's just fin or end. Yeah. So let's go back to the party. Okay. Um, the, so the, part, the party is what my favorite part of this whole book. <laughs> because, I mean, I know there's some awesome Deathbird battles, but so the party, Frank Gianelli steals another kiss. Um, also at the party is um, Tracy Burke, who is the older sort of uh, former lush that uh, Carol hired and now... <laughs> right. Apparently, she is tapped to take over for Carol, and she feels a little bit guilty about it. But Carol says, "Don't sweat it. I'm actually glad I'm I, I'm not working there anymore." Also, Michael Barnett, the her therapist slash boyfriend, is there. Yeah, I haven't um, seen him in a while. Right, and this is see, this always seems to happen. Is that so? The neighbor is there. Uh, what's her name? Oh yeah, we were just talking about her. Um, yeah, Arabella, Arabella, maybe. Arabella, and yeah. she so. She is like, hey, handsome. And then she's like all over him, you know. Yep. And he's really just looking for Carol. And Carol is canoodling with someone who we've not met yet. This yeah. guy, this actor, Sam Adams. And uh, so Sam Adams is trying to put the move. And then Michael Barnett kind of says, hey, how about a kiss? And then he accidentally spills his drink. And <laughs> it, it's, oh, it's so terribly awkward. And Yeah, that's right. All these guys kind of falling over right. Carol and... Yeah, and also at the party is Raven Darkholm, who's you know who knows how she got an invite if she's just as herself or if she's masquerading as someone else. Um, but I just thought, man, what, it's so it's so crazy that like this poor. I feel I feel bad for Michael Bar- Barnett. <laughs> I think it's in this issue that he says, "Oh, I I want to ask her to marry me, maybe." Yes, by hook or by crook, I'll have you as my wife, and then in the end, then I'll end this Ms. Marvel craziness forever. Yeah, so that's you kind of know he's setting himself up for failure, yeah. but at the, same, <laughs> at the same time, I just feel bad for the poor guy. <laughs> you should never go into a marriage thinking you're going to fix <laughs> the other person. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. Yeah, there's just yeah, that seems very strange. And also like they haven't really been dating for a long time. We haven't seen him in several issues. You can't just yeah, like propose in a to a woman. Right. <laughs> like and that. she took him to Boston with her to meet her family. Like they went on vacation together. Right, yeah. And then yeah, I don't know. I I just feel bad for the guy, you know? It it's clear that she's she's not into him as he is to her and it's just uh, I feel bad for the poor guy. So this whole party scene, I think, is um, Frank Zeck. Definitely a lot yeah. of Frank Zeck faces and, and poses and that yeah, kind of I'll stuff. Yeah, I'll buy that. So I think Zeck does the, the party scene and Vosberg does the Deathbird battle sequence. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how they've divided up the, the issue here. Well, I wonder if, uh, yeah, this is, this is just a kind of an odd issue. Wraps up a few things doesn't really doesn't really carry on any of the ongoing storylines except w- with the brief appearance of Raven mm-hmm. and then it introduces a brand new character with Sam Adams who comes out of right. nowhere and so the, can we go into the next issue here yes yes let's issue number 23 the woman who fell to earth this is the final issue of Miss Marvel series and Sam Adams at, is right here uh, in the front they're they're like kissing I think it's implied that they spent the night together. Um, I, I feel like that they are coming home from a date because then she says, well, how about some breakfast? Or 
because they're outside her apartment, right? Yep, yep. And then he's like, oh, I got to, he's got to film, so he's an actor, he's got to film something and he's got to memorize his lines or something, I don't know. Lame excuse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but definitely, yeah, they're definitely dating at this point. That's, that's a, definitely a romantic relationship now. So it's just, it's just out of nowhere. And if you yeah. are not paying attention to the previous issue because Sam Adams is only in like two panels, you'd be right. like, who the heck is this guy? And how, how right. has this relationship progressed so quickly and we haven't even seen it? Right. Now, you definitely saw that there was like the flirting going on, but, yep. you, didn't, but you didn't know. And, and you know what? We didn't mention really quickly in that one panel in the last issue when Raven is there. She says, you know, I'm going to get her. But first, I must attend to this Barnett. So that's kind of a, an ominous quote there that I think will pay off in this issue. Yeah. I actually really like this issue a lot. Um, tying up or bringing back the friend uh, Salia, Salia Petri, who, mm-hmm. who apparently was dead, but now she's back and tells the whole story of what happened to her while she was gone. And so Carol, um, and look at, uh, or sorry, just a second. Um, so Carol is taken to where, to outer space, the space station called Dry Dock, which I guess yeah. is where the Guardians of the Galaxy at the time are setting up shop. Um, after the Korvac saga, which I think mm-hmm. had just happened at this point. Yeah. And uh, the, the villain in this one is called the Faceless One. He is a character from Astonishing Tales number two, which is a Doctor Doom series. And he, he uh, hasn't been seen since. So uh, he's his plan, I don't even know exactly what his plan is here. I, I kind of got the impression that he he has the ability to control people, and I felt like he was just going to control them one at a time, <laughs> like and eventually take over the world. That's yeah. kind of what I, I think. That's but, his you know, MD, he had but... Salia, and Salia yeah. had. A, she's like, well, I know a friend. Well, okay, let's let's go get her, and then we'll we'll keep going. Um, yeah. So uh, let's see here. I feel I really feel like this was the beginning of a story that Claremont had intended to go longer, but maybe had to wrap it up because the series was coming to an end or something like that. Because we see one of the Guardians of the Galaxy, we see Vance Astro, right, and he helps he helps out Carol through this issue, um, and it really feels like they're building to the point where they're going to have to call the rest of the Guardians to help, and they're going to battle the Faceless One. And uh, and have a have a much bigger battle, but then all of a sudden the tide changes and they just kind of it just kind of takes care of itself. Yeah, and the fa- faceless one just kind of gets out of there, and and that's it. And I don't really, I never really understood how. Like, so this is the the ship of the Guardians. How is the faceless one operating out of the ship without them even knowing? Right. Um, yeah. Exactly. I think I think that he has been there since before the Guardians got there, or maybe I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, me yeah. neither. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. So the other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, check check out Carol's green dress that she wears throughout this issue. Mm-hmm. And we were just talking about the tied up shirt and Daisy Duke shorts. Yes. And this is more of what I think we would expect from Carol based on what we've seen in previous issues. Though it does get torn up pretty well. It does. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Conveniently. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, aside from the aside from the oddness of the character's motivations, um, this was a good issue. I, I really like how Carol addresses Salia, how they kind of deal with uh, the shock of her coming back and... I think it's to give Carol a little bit of closure in that in that 
story because she feels guilty about choosing saving the world over saving mm-hmm. her friend. Right. Yeah, I, it was it, that was nice. I'm glad that they they gave her that aspect. Though a part of me still feels, man, that's a tough decision to make, and it's a tough thing to like. They, that could have been used throughout her story arc, you know, of her career to say, you know, what I let my best friend die. Yeah, she's the person who's willing to make you know, the hard that, that decision. Could have been yeah. Right, right. It makes a tough decision. Yeah. Well, this is the final issue of the series. How do you think the series did as a whole? Uh, well, if, if I had been reading the series at the time, I would have been really disappointed because they promised me Sabretooth and, <laughs> and then there <laughs> yeah. was a, no more issues. But um, But you know what? You wouldn't have been excited because they promised Sabretooth because that would have only been Sabretooth's second appearance. At this point, he had only appeared in Iron Fist in one issue. Right. So you would have been like, Sabretooth who? But he looked cool. It's back to my tiger shark. <laughs> if you hadn't seen that one issue of Iron Fist, though, you wouldn't know that he looks cool at all. Right. He's an unknown. Right. If I was reading. And, and at this time, uh, my reading of Marvel was very sporadic. It was whatever my mom brought home to me. That's cool that your mom brought home comics. Yes, yes. So my mom would bring random comics to me. It wasn't until I was about 10 or 11 that I started buying them myself and actually buying uh, runs, you know, start to actually buy the next story and the next story. Right. At this point, it was just random issues. But I, I enjoyed the the arc that she took. I mean, she definitely grew from the first issue to this one. Uh, it's too bad, obviously, that either kind of a lot of dangling plot points that, you know, fans at the time probably are wondering if they're ever going to get paid off. Yeah. But um, yeah. these last few issues for me... We weren't getting a lot of development of that Raven Darkholm plot, so you know it doesn't surprise me that it it got canceled. Yeah, I I wonder if all of the changes that Claremont was making kind of d- detracted a lot of uh, a lot of the readers, because if people it's jumped possible. on board at the beginning and really liked the aspects that Conway had set up, and then Claremont one at a time just keeps on taking things away, the people are like, hey, right. things are changing too fast, and he's start starting to he's. I think Claremont's still a fairly new writer at the time, right? I guess right. he's writing X-Men at this time as well. I mean, well. he's writing X-Men, definitely. Yeah. And Marvel Team-Up. Uh, okay, so he's he's definitely got a lot of stuff under on his plate right now. And I, either this is just kind of falling through the cracks, because I feel like his plotting, uh, just like the way he's pacing his story arcs or ongoing stories throughout the issues, is just not strong. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely a Claremontism, is that they're very drawn out. Their payoffs take years. Which is fine if, if things yeah. get followed through, but... Right. Yeah, not in this case. Okay, let's keep going. We have uh, still half of the book to go, even though we've yep. finished the regular series. There's still plenty of stuff to talk about, starting with Marvel 2-in-1, number 51. So this, if I had seen this on the rack at my local 7-Eleven, this would have probably been my first choice. Yeah. Because this is what... Sh- I loved in Marvel 2-in-1. The more heroes, the better. Marvel 2-in-1, number 51, guest starring The Beast, Ms. Marvel, Nick Fury, and Wonder Man in Full House, Dragon's High. Uh, So we've got a Peter Gillis story penciled by Frank Miller and Bob McCloud. Uh, And this is, was it Patrick that said that he likes uh, card games? Yep. This is a superhero poker game. And uh, that's the reason that all these heroes come together. Um... And I think, is it in this issue? Maybe it's in, 
another is at some point we are Ms. Marvel is referenced as an either an Avenger or a part-time Avenger. Yeah, it is in this issue. In yeah. fact, in the past few issues, we haven't really mentioned it, but she does mention that she's like a reserve Avenger or, or right. like she works with the Avengers and in this one which we never get that in inside her pages it must have happened in the avengers so that's that's coming up actually um miss marvel joins the avengers in issue number 147 which was published the very same month as this book right here this issue right here marvel 2151 ah, perfect yeah so nick fury gets a call that the helicarrier is under attack and it's under attack by agents of the yellow particular if you look at pages 216 217 an awesome spread that's very reminiscent of the Starenko issues of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yes. Uh, just a, a beautiful shot there. And the story is actually pretty pretty easily summed up. Uh, the heroes appear, they save the day, and they go back to their card game. Yeah, that's really all it is. There's not a yeah. whole lot to it. Um, in fact, the only reason why I would put this one in here is is because of the poker game is referenced again later on in this book. Right, and we've got another poker game later on. Yeah, yeah. So otherwise, I would I would have actually put in Avengers number one forty seven, so we get her joining the Avengers. Yes, uh, that I definitely would have liked to have seen. It's kind of um, odd that they omitted that one. But I love me some Marvel team up because I love me some Ben Grimm, yeah. and um, and you get some very early Frank Miller art. Frank Miller being inked by Bob McCloud, so it, in fact it doesn't even really look like Frank Miller. Right. I guess this this shot in two eleven is very Frank Miller esque with it with the shadows. Uh, yeah, that's a very very cool picture. I like yeah. how they've done that. Yes, um, it's really cool. Yep. So there's one instance, there's one reference here on page 214. Dum Dum is, he's, of course, he's part of S.H.I.E.L.D. working with Nick Fury, and he says, great, just great. I get one lousy furlough from Godzilla duty, and this has to happen. Yeah. That's a reference to the Godzilla comic that Marvel was publishing at the time, because uh, Dum Dum was a regular character in that book. He was a, the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent assigned to keeping track of Godzilla as he rampaged through different places. Yeah, I've only read random issues of that one as well, but uh, I know that was collected in an Essentials volume, but I, that's black and white. If I can only cross my fingers we get a color collection at some point in time. Yeah, that would probably have to... That I don't know that that'll ever happen because the licensing rights for Godzilla now are with IDW currently. But pretty much every character in the Marvel Universe, from Spider-Man to the Avengers to Devil Dinosaur, appears in Godzilla at one right. point or another. And so the licensing agreements for each one of those characters between Marvel and IDW is would cost that that project so much money that it wouldn't wouldn't be I'm sure it wouldn't be profitable to actually make a Godzilla reprint book. Well, I can only hope. Yeah, I can hope too. But, you know, the issues aren't that hard to come by. Uh, I recently bought, actually, a full run of Godzilla comics um, for not that much. So you can get them that way. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Anything else you want to talk about in this no, issue? No, I dug it. Okay. I dug it. It was yep. very simple, one and done. I liked it a lot. Yep. It's, it was good. doesn't really amount to anything, but it's still a fun, good time. I enjoyed it more than the Doctor Strange team-up story. Okay. Moving on to Marvel Superheroes. Now, these ones actually don't have numbers attached to them. It's Marvel Superheroes uh, Summer Special, 1992 Summer Special. Mm -hmm. 
And this is what would have been issue number 24 of the Miss Marvel series. Right. Uh, we get the cover. The cover is included in this, which is nice. And this is the cover that Patrick was saying he wished was the cover to the volume. It is a nice yeah. looking cover. Very cool. Yep. In this one, Sabretooth escapes a prison transfer. And it happens to be right where Miss Marvel is eating lunch. And so, of course, <laughs> she uh, is on scene to save the day. Uh, Chris Claremont's writing. Mike Vosberg is is drawing, and uh, yeah, this is it. Picks up kind of right where the series left off. It's kind of cool that these these pages were complete, but were just shelved, and we still have them. Right. So we get that that storyline. Uh, the only th- real thing to note in this one is that Carol tries to call um, Mike Barnett's office, and Mike Barnett doesn't answer because he is dead. And his office has been ransacked, and we don't know why. Right. I don't very, even, they're very chilling page, as someone yeah. pointed out. Uh, I didn't even recognize Mike Barnett because he's got black hair in this. Yep. Or is it blue hair? <laughs> he's got Superman hair. Because he's supposed to have brown hair. Right. But, yeah. Um, and we also meet a couple of new characters that I guess Carol knows from back in her army days. And I don't know if they were going to become supporting cast members or if they were just here for this one issue. Um, but it, that was a nice a nice little addition. They had a good conversation. Um, yes. And we have another instance of people who aren't a couple getting really canoodling together there. With Carol greets uh, her friend's husband with a big kiss on the lips. Yeah, that's kind of awkward. Yeah. <laughs> with the woman standing even, right there. Do you there. think your wife will mind? <laughs> uh, I hope so, and I don't care. Oh, boy. <laughs> very, very odd. Uh, well, you know what? It, whatever they're okay with. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, so like I said, this would have been Sabretooth's second appearance. So the prison transfer that he's here in is directly directly comes after when he was taken into custody at the end of the issue of Iron Fist. Yeah. And I like the references in there to uh, the how the, you know he's being transferred to the Canadian government and the, how they 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 might have designs on capturing Weapon X again or otherwise known as Logan. So you get some some little hints that Sabretooth might be meeting up with Logan at some point down the line. Yeah, and I like this this little caption box. It says to capture Weapon X asterisk, and the asterisk goes to it says uh, better known as Wolverine, currently a member of the mutant superhero team the X Men. Such a thing <laughs> to write, and if this was actually published in 1981, that would have made sense to put a caption like right. that. But by 1992, everyone yeah. knows who Wolverine is <laughs> and the X Men. Yes, you couldn't help but know them by 1992. Right. Are you ready to move on to the next issue? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Take us through Marvel Superheroes number 11. Essentially, we, we don't really see Carol discover that Michael Barnett has been killed. Um, but we see her and Iron Man investigating the scene of the crime. And as you, Iron Man invents this really cool invention that lets him see everything that happened in that room. Very cool. Um, so they get to see someone masquerading as Carol came in and literally crushed poor Michael Barnett uh, with their hands to death. And we see that it is Mystique and that she then goes in and pulls out the file for Carol Danvers and makes a phone call. So um, Carol then uh, investigates further. She uses that lead of the phone call. It leads her to the airport 
where she finds uh, a gun running operation and she finds that this gun running operation is also involves the Hellfire Club and she gets into a little battle with the Hellfire Club and escapes and then decides that she's going to keep following the main gun runner um, so she follows him to Hong Kong and uh, ends up with a uh, a battle in Hong Kong against the Brotherhood, the New Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Yeah, it's again. I feel like this probably would have been several issues had the story been allowed to progress in regular issues of Ms. Marvel, um, because you get a lot happens and and it happens fast. Here. It does, yeah. And this is only like this is only half of the issue was written by Claremont. Right up to when they uh, they meet Avalanche and Pyro, that's the last Vosburgh page. Mm. And so that's where the story takes a turn. The rest of the issue is drawn by Mike Gustavich, and is, the rest of it's written by Simon Furman. Interesting. Yeah. So if this were actually published in 1981, um, this would have been the first appearance of the Hellfire Club. It also would have been the first appearance of of Pyro and Avalanche, and it also would have been the first appearance as one shot of Rogue on lying on the couch on page 261. Right. That, that would have been the first appearance of Rogue, um, and I think the first appearance of Destiny as well. All of these characters Claremont created for Miss Marvel, but then it got shelved, and then it wouldn't be for a year and a half or so later that he would start introducing them into the X-Men storylines. Yeah. So, yeah, cool piece of history, I think. Just neat to see that uh, all of these early versions of these characters and that uh, Claremont takes them, revises them, and, and makes them even better. So in this issue, that machine that Iron Man makes is so incredible that he can <laughs> see like the it's ghost images convenient. in the room. He should use that all the time, but we never, ever see it ever again. Why didn't Carol just invent that herself? Uh, yeah, you know? right. <laughs> Why did she need Iron Man? I don't know. Well, it, the nice thing is, is it, it gives them a reason to chit-chat back and forth. We find out that Iron Man is apparently a, a kind of a, a chauvinist. Yep. You know, all of a sudden now, after many years of the Marvel Universe, he's basically saying, I don't know that the superheroing game is for women. <laughs> Even though, like, Wasp... Right, right. Carol gives us an interesting tidbit where she says, well, let me tell you about this Soviet assassin that I used to know who killed 23 people. And uh, I was supposed to be her 24th victim, yeah, right? which is kind of an odd, you know. So apparently maybe that was when her, during her espionage days that we don't really know about. Because we find out later that she's got this past with, with Wolverine, you know, that I'm assuming is some kind of crazy espionage stories that, that are never told. Yeah, I don't know. Very weird. Yeah, that's an odd comment, an odd story. Yeah. This issue also gives me the idea that, you know, the Hellfire Club is aware of the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants because Sebastian Shaw, the leader of the Hellfire Club, mentions, you know, yeah, I took care of that arms dealer because he was going to, you know, he was going to double cross us that those arms we thought we were buying were going to go to the Hellfire Club. I'm mean, not the Hellfire, the Evil Mutants. And I yeah. wonder if maybe Mystique, when she was answering to someone in previous issues, what could it have been Sebastian Shaw? Uh, yes. Possibly. Possibly. Or who knows? But that was that was one of my theories that I had come up with. Because we never do find out who that person was that she was answering to. Yeah. I wonder. That's, yeah, that could be. That's a yeah. good theory. But then, and then, yeah, and then Mystique would be double-crossing 
Shaw right. trying to get the weapons. Yeah, yeah. Right. Huh. And that would make sense because the Hellfire Club is always referred to as lords and that kind of thing, right? Oh, that's ladies. a good point. I didn't even put. I didn't. Put, I know they dress each other like queen and king. Yep, but they they take it to the, that level with a. Yeah. 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 Possibly. So this issue in this epic collection, Marvel Superheroes number 11, is interrupted halfway through. We get a few of the Mike Gustavich pages, and then they insert a couple of lead-up pages to um, in, in the Avengers numbers 197 to 199. Mm-hmm. And then we get Avengers number 200. And after Avengers number 200, the, the remaining pages of Marvel Superheroes number 11 appear. And in this epic collection, they actually make a mistake and say that these remaining pages are from Marvel Superheroes number 10, but that's not correct. It says that on, it's a uh, page 314. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, it's actually number 11. Uh, okay, so before we jump into the remaining pages of issue 11 here, let's talk. Do you have any comments about just these lead-up pages? Uh, in these ones, the lead, they just include the few pages where Carol f- discovers she's pregnant and then is in the hospital and she's coming to full term in a matter of days and then leads up to she's taken back to the Avengers mansion and she's going to give birth. And Dr. Don Blake is there and he's like, she's going into labor and it's not like right. I've ever seen before. You better get <laughs> over here, guys. Right. Uh, Other than the George Perez art is beautiful, but other than that, you have no comment. Okay, so let's go right into issue number 200. Let's do it. This is the infamous issue 200. It's called The Child is is Father 2? Question mark? Because we don't know. Um, Oh, yeah, that's the other thing that you need to know here is that Carol has no idea who the father is. She didn't even know she was pregnant until it started happening. Right. In fact, she said there there, there couldn't be a father, meaning that she she knew that she did not have any encounter in the past, you know, recent past that would have gotten her pregnant. But she has been missing for a period of time. Um, they do make a reference to the fact that she has just disappeared and she's been, uh, no one's seen her for something like six months or something like that. And then she resurfaces in San Francisco. San Francisco or San Diego? But, yeah, but that hasn't happened yet. Oh, it hasn't happened. Um, oh, I'm thinking of the last page. Of, right. So, so page number 270, which is the last page of Marvel's Superheroes number 11. Right. Uh, before it gets interrupted by these Avengers issues, Raven talks about how she's disappeared. So that this is the story of why she's disappeared, I guess. <laughs> a little bit hard. Oh, but she's, to, I feel yeah. like she's saying that she's disappeared from my visions, right? But that's because she is in limbo. Um, Destiny says she's she has no future anymore because she's oh, just so disappeared. You're saying that this this takes place after Avengers 200? Yeah. So I guess because because of the way. Sorry for all you listening. We're jumping back and forth here. This is page number 270. The first panel is Ms. Marvel looking over Mike Barnett's dead body. So they have to include that before the Avengers. But then the rest of the panel, the rest of the page says time has passed. Weeks passed. Oh, see, now I think the top of 270, she's looking at the body of the arms dealer, Kohalo. Because just before that, Sebastian Shaw on 269 says, uh, I tr- you know, I trust oh, Mr. Right. Shaw you impressed upon. I said, oh, yeah, don't worry, Tessa. I took care of that. Oh, and it has this, the stab in the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. Of course, because that's not how Mike Barnett died. But anyway, right. it, regardless who that is, it has a 
it directly has to do with something that's happening in the present. And then it skips ahead to weeks where Mystique says, God, what do you mean she's gone? And, and Destiny says, um, Carol Danvers has gone from all possible futures I, I, that I can perceive. Not dead, just gone. This is when she's right. in limbo. So yeah, this makes sense in that it's an error that obviously this was written after it abs- 200 yeah. and Avengers 10. Yeah. So that their continuity is just is skipped. It's just off now. So right. So we get a little bit of hint, and and Raven's like, I'm gonna. Um, you you once predicted that she would harm Rogue. Whatever you say now, that I will not allow, even if it costs me my life. Right. So there's a little bit of a hint of what Mystique's motivation is. There, yes, and I think that a hundred percent is the reason. So it's a retcon, you know, all though. the way back. Yes, yes. Because this is well, Simon Furman writing in 1992. This page is written in 1992. After everybody point. already knows what's happening with Rogue, so they are shoehorning Mystique's um, cause for going after Carol in here right yes. now. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay, sorry. So now, now, now that we've got that straight, we're now <laughs> as straight as you can, as serious as we can be. Mystique says she's gone. She's just she's just gone. We don't know why she's gone. And so this here, Avengers two hundred, is telling us the story of why she's gone. So she gives birth to the baby. The baby starts growing at an extraordinary rate. In a matter of hours, he is full grown. In fact, he knows how to speak. He's intelligent. He reveals himself to be Marcus the son of Immortus, or a descendant of Immortus. I don't know if it's exactly the son. The son, yeah. The son, okay. So, Immortus, Immortus dies, and Marcus is stuck in limbo. And he figures out a way... This is, this, is the, the, this is what's so controversial here. He figures out a way to get out of limbo. He can put his essence... He can transfer his essence to somebody, but he needs that somebody to come to Limbo. So he tele- transports Miss Marvel to Limbo, woos her, mm-hmm. um, kind of does everything he can so that he can fall in love. She gets pregnant with his essence. It's not his child. It's actually himself. Right. And then, sent, then he dies in Limbo. She gets sent back to to earth with no recollection of what's going on and is pregnant and then gives birth to him <laughs> so and and the 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 hardest part to swallow here and i'll give credit to the writers they make a very convincing case for marcus as to what his options are here he's like i have no choice he built a machine so that he could stay in earth and not age rapidly but then hawkeye destroys it so he has to go back to limbo but if he goes back to limbo he's going to drive himself mad because it's just a lonely place and miss marvel she says that she gets the hints of the romance that they shared and so she's like oh no it's okay you won't be alone i'll go with you uh and we'll spend this time close we're you know we're closer than we've ever felt before we'll spend uh, a happy life together they go off the avengers don't do anything to stop them the way it's written here it's i can understand the writers trying to give miss marvel a good Mm send-off like they're really trying and i think maybe now is a time that i can put before we get into our conversation there's one clip of David Michelinie talking about this issue. He's who, the one who was writing the Avengers at the time. This is a clip taken from Adam Chapman's Comic Shenanigans podcast uh, interview with, with uh, David Michelinie, which the whole thing is worth listening to. So go check out Comics Shenanigans and, and he- listen to that. So this is a clip of him talking about this issue. <laughs> oh, gosh. That, <laughs> uh, that was... I Okay, I had come up with an idea 
for issue 200. I, I'm, I'm trying to be tactful here because I don't want to mention any names. I had come up with an idea. Uh, it had been, the, the subplots had been done. They had been plotted. They had been drawn. They had been scripted. Issue 200 was, was on the schedule. Uh, the plot was in. It was about to be drawn. When a story came out, published, that was almost exactly the same as the story was going to be for issue 200. Uh, I, I don't know where. I mean, it was written by an editor. Whether that editor had overheard something, whether that editor had just read the, the plot and had been going around, whether it was done on purpose or whether it was just something stuck in the back of his head and he, he wrote it without realizing it was the same story that I was doing, I don't know. But basically, we're stuck with a deadline, with a book that was late, with a story that we couldn't use. So myself and I think, I think Shooter and Layton and one or two other people got together and put this plot together that would fit in with what had been set up but was different. Um, it, it's gotten a lot, of, a lot of heat, especially from feminists, about uh, uh, Captain Marvel you know, being pregnant, pregnant and her accepting this more than possibly a real woman would. And, you know, they're right. But it was done, uh, like, overnight, uh, trying to fit pieces together uh, at the last minute to, to make something work. And uh, would I have done differently if I could go back? Yeah, I would. But, you know, it was the best we could do at the time. Huh. So what do you have to say about Avengers 200, Carlos? Uh, well, the art is gorgeous. Yes. I'm a huge George Perez fan. Yep. Uh, absolutely love it. When I read this and Avengers 10, I was probably 10 or 11 years old. I didn't really see a problem. You know, it's famously a, a problem now. But at the time, I didn't see a problem. I probably, I was sad. I'm like, oh, as a superhero that's going away to like, you know, live in limbo with her boyfriend, I'd rather she be a part of the Avengers. You know, the more superheroes, the better for me. Um, and then in Avengers 10, again, I read that I was about 10 or 11 when that came out. She was ticked at the Avengers and really, I kind of empathized with the Avengers because I thought, well, you said you wanted to go, but yeah. of course there is the, the subtle hints where he says, I wooed her. I didn't want to do it the way my father did and make them fall in love with me, uh, but I wooed her and I used a little help with the, <laughs> from my father's <laughs> make them fall in love with me machine. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that probably I, I I probably missed that as an eleven year old, but obviously that that's a you know he he told them he told them right there you know, and it yep. to be fair it isn't all of the Avengers it's it's only Thor Iron Man and Hawkeye. Well, they're the only three that could possibly have questioned or stopped, and and there was an aspect of timing because that part of the reason Marcus had to build that machine was because his presence in our world was causing these time distortions, you know? Right. So all these, you know, monsters and, and people from all different times were coming, and, and it was creating chaos. He needed this machine to make him be able to stay there. When the machine was destroyed, the time distortions would have kept going until, you know, I don't know if it would have destroyed the world, but so he had to leave. Yeah. That had to, so there was an aspect of, of I've got to go now, because he really actually wanted them to kill him. And when they weren't going to kill him, he's like, well, i got to get out of here. And then she says, well, I'm going to go with you, and we're going to live happily ever after. 
Um, so I'm not defending the Avengers, but to be fair, it was only three of them who could have possibly questioned. And we know Hawkeye is a kind of a goof. He's the one that destroyed the machine to begin with without even asking what it was for. And, uh, you know, Iron Man and Thor, well, you know, they dropped the ball. They did. And I think, though, what, what Carol, the, the thing that Carol calls them out for in the, in the next annual is not necessarily for letting them go, but for the way they acted when she was terrified of, about being pregnant. She didn't yes. want to be pregnant. That was something she never, ever... Yes. Wa- and, and they were just like, oh, that's actually a really good thing. And she's like, no, right. this is a terrible thing. I don't know how I yes. got there. And they're like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, And she even says... It was, yes, there was definitely two fronts to her attack. And it was one, you know, how, you know... You guys were like, yay, here's a teddy bear, right? Yep. And you let me go with him. Yeah, you yeah. Know? There's both but of them. Yeah, you're, you're right. And, and everyone had culpability in that first front. So after this Avengers 200 there, like I said before, we continue with the last half of the Marvel Superheroes number 11. Mm-hmm. This is the fight between Rogue and Miss Marvel that we've actually never seen before. Yeah. This issue was done in the 90s, so... We it fills in some gaps, I think, that we previously hadn't really, really seen. Yeah, and it also gives us a little hint of what's coming up. Uh, it kind of brings readers up to speed to where binary is at this point in 1992. Although yeah. I don't even know is she still binary in 92? You know, I wasn't reading regularly in 92, um, but I wouldn't be surprised. I know she was binary when I when I stopped around 87. And I think she became part of the Starjammers right. title yeah, yeah, yeah. that was uh, maybe early 90s. Okay, so that's where we're at with her character. So what this does is acts as a little bit of a bridge between um, Avengers 200 and this Avengers Annual number 10. Now, mm-hmm. uh, just before we start with Avengers Annual number 10, I'm going to play a little clip from Chris Claremont talking about his role in sort of undoing what was done in Avengers uh, 200. Cool. I had such a negative reaction to Avengers 200. Right. That I just had to do something about it. And I just, I wrote that story and pitched it and Jim bought it, but it, it, it just exploded out of me because I found the initial story. So the tactful word is unfair. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I couldn't conceive of that happening with any of the real people I knew, and especially any of the real women that I knew, and them letting it slip by like that. I mean, it was just wrong on every imaginable level. It, the fact that it happened, the fact that the Avengers let it happen, mm-hmm. the fact that nobody asked a question anywhere, the fact that nobody... Helped her afterwards? Try, well, that the, they took that they took her decision to go away with uh, what's-his-face. Uh, you know, oh, good for you. It's a happy ending. Hmm. Live happily ever after. Bye-bye. Yeah. That, it, it's just, ugh. And so, I, I mean, that, the amusing, not amusing, but Shooter's, Jim is quite right. The actual story of the Avengers annual doesn't begin until page 32 when the Quinjet lands at, the, at Xavier's mansion, right. The first thirty pages are are all backstory and setup. And no, I wanted to put Carol in a point. You know, there's a consequence to events, and I didn't want 
to do a story where after all of that, Carol just reverted to, to basically normal and went back to the Avengers and everything went on as if nothing had happened. Mm-hmm. Right. There are consequences that, that, you know, and sometimes as Wanda says, I think to, to the vision at the end is they didn't see it coming. And it didn't, the fact that, I mean, as Carol says to them, you let me go and never once said, what the hell is happening here? You know, if you're heroes, you've got to take responsibility. You've got to, you've got to take that extra moment to look at the, uh, what is happening and ask, is this right? Yeah. And if it, if it is right, let's prove it. If it isn't right, we've got to do something about it. And I also didn't want, uh, what's his face? I, I happily killed him off with permission, but I didn't want him popping up anytime in the future. And, and <laughs> I'm sure if some other writer wanted to bring him back, they could. But you could argue that it, what I did was in, inappropriate and in that you, you shouldn't have one writer writing and doing an editorial commentary on another writer. But I was young and pissed and I was really pissed. So Avengers Annual number 10. This is titled... By Friends Betrayed, and written, of course, by Chris Claremont, drawn by Michael Golden with Armando Gill. This, one of my favorite all-time comics, starts with a daring save at the Golden Gate Bridge. Spider-Woman saves Carol Danvers and uh, has trouble IDing the Jane Doe. Um, finally, when they ID the Jane Doe as Carol Danvers, we find out that her, her mind has been essentially wiped. So... Spider-Woman says, well, my friend Charles Xavier might be able to help me with this, and enlists him to help. Meanwhile, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants has planned an attack on the Avengers, and it um, seems like this is, uh, Ro- well, I guess her first mission would have been the, the Carol attack, and then Rogue essentially uh, takes down the most powerful Avengers one by one in, in a planned attack, and... Um, and then she finds out that as more Avengers join the fray, she's not able to handle them, and she she takes off. And now we've got the Avengers involved, um, and essentially it's a it's a sort of a, a heist tale. We've got the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. They their plan is to break out uh, their comrades, um, and the Avengers, of course, now are are in on it. So they they come up with a big fight. At the uh, at the at the breakout, essentially they they uh, I think they are able to capture a few of the the, the mutants that break out, but um, Rogue and and Mystique escape, and the last part of the story is sort of this epilogue, and it's um, a very powerful scene where Carol Danvers uh, essentially tells the Avenger, gives them a piece of her mind, but she's also has forgiveness in her heart. And uh, she essentially says, you know, hey, uh, I'm going to go from here on out and I'm going to hang out with the X-Men. And uh, you guys <laughs> go your way. I've, I've said my piece and we'll go our separate ways. So I want to say just right off the bat that I love how this opens. The opening of this comic, especially since pe- people when they read this wouldn't have read that Marvel superheroes issue where where the the fight happens, um, so you get a mystery right off the bat. Right. Spider Woman rescues a person that we don't know, and we don't know who it is. 
And then when we do find out who it is, the mystery is even further deepened because she has no memory. I, I think that's just a brilliant way to, to hook us right at the beginning. So much fun. Very cool. Yes. And like I said, I, I bought this issue off the rack. And after finishing it, it became one of my favorite issues. And that I, I just love the fact that, one, it was a first appearance. You know, at that time, collecting, if you had a first appearance of a, of a character, you thought you were pretty cool. Uh, so it was the first appearance of a new villain, Rogue, and I didn't even realize, of course, who could, that Rogue would eventually join the X-Men. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I think it was within a year of this book, this book became really a treasure of mine because, wow, I've got a first appearance of, a, of an X-Men member. Um, but yeah, the, the mystery at this is it's an awesome way to start. And Rogue is just amazing in this issue. I don't think that yeah. we see her her strategic and tactical mind come out as much as we do in this issue, usually. Because usually right. she's used as just the powerhouse, but she knows yeah. how to use, even though these these Miss Marvel powers are fairly new to her, uh, she knows how to use them. She knows how to take advantage of the situation. She knows which heroes she should go for first and which she should leave for later. And when she realizes that she's outnumbered, she, she's out of there because she doesn't have the advantage. Right, and... I feel like Claremont does a decent job at, at some point in here where she essentially says that because she now has Carol Danvers' memories, it makes her particularly adept at knowing the Avengers' uh, habits and knowing their, their strengths and weaknesses. Um, so, obviously, uh, it's a cool part of the story where it's not only Rogue has now the powers of Ms. Marvel and her own energy-sapping powers, but she's got the the knowledge in you know inside knowledge of the avengers workings that she uses to her advantage i guess that's a, a case i always thought that it was kind of dumb that the avengers never told each other their secret identities uh, <laughs> and i guess this is a case what for the for that exactly <laughs> it's like if your mind is yes. ever taken over by someone else then <laughs> we don't want you to know who we are <laughs> which which quite honestly it happens a lot i guess so <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, yeah. Um, let's see what else was I going to say. Yeah, this this fight. What a what a highlight of the entire book. I think this fight between Rogue yeah. and the Avengers is just, and it's it's not just the fight. It's Michael Golden's art. He's just fantastic. I like so much about this. Um, his form. He has a sort. I I always describe his art as juicy. That his hmm. his characters look like they have a juiciness to them, and yeah. it's, it's kind of an odd adjective but i think it works um i just like the way he he framed i just like the way he he essentially creates the the setting um and just interesting things like you know on page 322 where spider woman is essentially sitting on the wall right drinking a cup of coffee uh that kind of stuff is neat in fact that panel has always stuck with me from this issue it's just kind of neat yeah very cool and i i love the uh, just the the action the there's so much energy in every single one of his panels, even with panels of people just standing there, they aren't just yeah. like yeah, like we, like you said with Spider Woman, they aren't just standing there. He's got so much so much character in all of his yeah. things. I've I just bought a stack of Micronauts comics, and I've been reading those for the first time. I've only read a, the first few so far, but Michael Golden does the first dozen or so issues, and it is just a treat. Let me tell you, it's it's so good. Yeah, I remember buying that first issue off the rack of Micronauts, and I remember thinking, and I, this was before I could ID certain artists or before I even really cared who the artists were, 
But I remember thinking that, man, the layouts were just kind of different than anything I'd seen before. And I feel like I, I probably just chalked it up to it was a science fiction book, but it was definitely Michael Golden. Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, so we, uh, the very third page, page 322, we see a very young Madeline Pryor. <laughs> Maddie Pryor. Maddie Pryor. Uh, shades of things to come here. I also really right. like how Chris Claremont ties the X-Men into this. Of course, he's been writing X-Men at this point for a number of years, and he, I guess he really is attached to Carol Danvers' character because he wasn't the writer. Was he the regular writer for Avengers at this time? No. No. He no. was only doing this annual. This was mm -hmm. his chance to take Carol and bring her into his own book. And so she becomes a regular or, a, an, I guess, a reoccurring character through the X-Men books for the next little while. Right. I think that's really cool. Um, it's just a carryover. Yeah, and over. I'm glad he did. Yep. I'm glad he did. I, I would have never, at this point, I wasn't regularly reading Avengers uh, when this came out in 1981. But, of course, with the X-Men on the Cover, that, that was enough to get me to buy that issue, and I'm glad I did. Yeah. Now, you say this is one of your all-time favorite issues. Is it because it's a first appearance of Rogue? Or like, what, what is it exactly? That definitely, at the time, as 11-year-old Carlos holding on to his, his, you know, most treasured issues, um, that was probably the main driver that I had the first appearance of, to me, was a major character. You know, she was relatively new, of course, but she was... Uh, an X-Men. Yeah. Uh, so that was the, the major driver. As I got older, of course, and I didn't really, the the whole Carol Avengers 200 uh, stuff was kind of over my head at the time as an 11-year-old. I didn't really get, you know, why or how she was mad at the Avengers. Um, but as I got older, I, I kind of understood that. And, and I just kept really appreciating Michael Golden uh, more and more uh, as I got older and kind of learned style and uh, was able to discern which artists, uh, you know, I like and just to be able to, to recognize style. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this epilogue um, where where Carol Danvers sort of calls out. We, we talked a little bit about what she has to say here when we talked about Avengers right. 200, but it's just a well-written scene. I think Chris Claremont has a really good grasp on, uh, on 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 character voices and also just how to to pace a tender scene like this that really makes you yeah. feel the emotions that Carol's feeling. Yeah, I mean you've got you know like what is it one two three at least four pages of just just talking. There's no action, um, but it's it's powerful and you feel it. And reading it now, I kind of get a sense that that Carol is Claremont sort of given the business to the you know the the powers that be that that made avengers 200 what it was yeah um i love on page 355 i i don't know if this was claremont's decision or michael golden's decision but the page is split into two columns the left column being carol and then the right column being professor xavier talking with spider woman Mm -hmm. And it they lay it out so that this conversation sort of happening at the same time, right? Uh, because they're parallel parallel columns. It's like they're that they're whatever Carol is saying right now. Spider Woman's listening in from where she's perched uh, in the in the mansion. And I feel like it, Golden or, or whoever gives you an arrow so you know to you know read read here and then read this one, but. Yep. It works either way, I feel like. You, you could read it across, and it still works. You could, and that gives a definite sense of it happening at the same time. But there's the, yeah. there's the thick, white uh, gap between the two columns that's, I think, supposed right. to signify that these are separate. The arrow, for sure, uh, drives that home. But yeah, it's yeah, I think you're right. very cool. 
Wow. Yeah. The I, I found that this one wrapped up a little bit quickly. Like she says goodbye. And then there's so much debriefing that happens in half of a page on the very last page of this issue uh, yeah. inside the Avengers Quinjet. And especially with Vision's speech, his little monologue that he says in the last panel. <laughs> right. There's so much there. Um, I feel like that could have been stretched out a little bit more, but I guess they were tight for space. Yeah. You know, my my only gripe about this is that I feel like after, at this moment, what, what kind of bothered me is that Captain America is silent throughout everything. Hmm. And I feel like of anyone, Captain America would have been the one to say, you know what, uh, we were wrong and you're right. You know, I feel like of any of these heroes, he would be the first to step up and admit his fault. Uh, and going yeah. back in Avengers 200, Captain America was not present and Carol said, I'm going to go with Marcus and live happily ever after. And, and Iron Man and Hawkeye and right. Thor said, so it's, okay, it's well. it's not his place to apologize. Right. But at the same time, I feel like it, he, I mean, he's the quarterback of the Avengers, right? He's the face of the Avengers. Yeah. And I, I feel like even though he wasn't there and maybe he would have said, well, if I, if I was there, I wouldn't have let her leave, guys. What were you doing? <laughs> I still feel like he would be the face of the Avengers for the apology. And he doesn't say anything. And I, that kind of, uh, that was kind of disappointing for me. Hmm. And you, you go back to even issue number uh, 199. He never, let's see here. Yeah, he never says any sort of congratulatory words uh, or anything like that. Like, like when everyone's all cooing over how pregnant she is and congratulating right. her. He he doesn't say anything there too. So actually he kind of is very neutral throughout this whole thing. Yeah. So it, it I think it's appropriate that Wanda is the one on behalf of the team to say sorry because she is the closest friend that Carol has at this point. And True. Uh, and she was the one who kind of misstepped during the pregnancy as well. So yeah. I think it's okay that she's the one that said I'm sorry. Yeah, and it works too because at the time we know that Wanda, her big worry is that she may never have kids. So that obviously, when when Carol becomes pregnant, even as a surprise, Wanda is like, "This is a blessing." Yeah, you, know, you should yeah. be embracing this. It's very true. That that makes sense. Hmm. Do you think back in Avengers two hundred, the the crew, whether it's Michelini or Shooter, do you think that they? knew uh do you think that they were blind to what they did to to carol danvers i think they were yep i i i think they absolutely were uh and i think that they wouldn't have done it if they had realized of course what kind of backlash it was going to get um no one wants to say that they did this on purpose this kind of thing on purpose and i ask because yeah they leave the last little clue in avengers 200 where marcus says and with a little help from my father's machines, I got her to fall in love with me. You know, if if they had never put that in there, essentially the story tells us that Carol truly fell in love with him and truly wants to be with him. Yeah. Um, hmm. So I don't know if that was an intentional little out or if they just... Right. I, I don't think so either. But, in, I don't think it, so. It's an, it worked well that it was there. Yeah. Chris was able to pick it up and uh, right. a, and extract from that his, his story. Now, I... And I just think that they were trying to write a Marcus story. They weren't thinking about writing a Carol story. Right. And so that's that was their focus. 
and it, I think it's just also just a frame of mind of uh, of even still in 1981. Like this is this is why Miss Marvel exists is to bring this awareness for uh, for women uh, in a you know quote unquote patriarchal society, right? And yeah. And so what we're seeing here is people automatically believing and not questioning the side of the man in the situation. This is going to drive, you know, all these people crazy who who don't like politics in their comics and stuff. But <laughs> I was watching uh, just a couple of nights ago. I found a channel on my Roku that shows all Dick Van Dyke show episodes. Like they have all five seasons there. I'm like, oh, this is awesome because I love old, old uh um, sitcoms like that. Mm-hmm. So I've been watching the Dick Van Dyke show, and in there, this one episode, Dick Van Dyke's character has to uh, choose between going to his son's uh, school play or going on a work trip as a, a scout to to see a singer and a dancer for his show because he's a he's a TV writer. Um, mm-hmm. And his boss, of course, wants him to go this to this thing. It's like, it's just your kid's play. It's not a big deal. And then Mary Tyler Moore, his wife, says, no, you got to come to this is important. Um, don't go on this trip. And, you know, he has to make a hard decision. And as in a 1950s fashion, as the man of the household decides that he needs to do what his boss says and go on his on his work trip because ultimately he's providing for his family or something like that and he's not going to let his wife he it's it's pretty crazy uh thinking about it because he he talks about he's not going to let his wife control him like a puppet (laughs) and he has his whole dream sequence where she's a um, a puppet and he's uh, she's the the puppeteer and he's a puppet on a string and and in the end, he, he comes back after his work trip and they have a little spat. And if we find out that his wife is actually mad at him because, or she's not mad at him. She's mad at herself for being mad at him. Like she, oh, shouldn't, wow. she shouldn't have been mad at him. And he's like, oh, I guess I'm out of the doghouse. They kiss and make up and the episode ends. And he doesn't wow. get in any sort of trouble. Of course, it's an impossible situation that he that he's in. They, they've ri- written him in. Um, but it's like... They they gave the man the out and disregarded the woman's feelings altogether by saying that she shouldn't have been mad at him in the first place. And I was like, wow, that is very typical of the time. And I feel like reading this issue or this book here is doing the same thing. The Avengers... They they just kind of took the the man's word at face value and didn't take into account Carol's feelings. And when the people were writing this story, that was that was where their head was at as well. Yeah. And that was just kind of a sign of the times. I think we're more sensitive to that kind of thing these days. And of course, that that definitely comes out when when uh, we're looking at all the stuff that happens, you know, surrounding Bill Cosby and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it, too, that that was their mindset with Avengers 200. But I felt like it was important to ask the question because, as a devil's advocate, that little nugget that was left in there that essentially, yes, she was mind-controlled, and he tells everyone, uh, was left in there. And obviously, Claremont picks that up and, and, and ran with it, as he should have. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I don't, I don't think, I think they thought, yeah, you know, she can live happily ever after and you know five ten years if we need ms marvel again we'll we'll bring her back yeah i don't know that i fault the people for writing the story exactly um i think that they should maybe should have had more awareness but what's done mm-hmm. is done 
it was a sort of a joint effort that the original plot was different and then it, it multiple hands got in there am i right yeah multiple hands and they were behind in their deadline they like they really rushed this through and so they weren't right. thinking straight when they were doing it i know this is just excuse making and stuff and i uh, but but it is what it is and we yeah. moved on Things have gotten better, of course, for Carol. She is now Captain Marvel and is one of the strongest superheroes in the Marvel Universe. So she has bounced back from this terrible ordeal and has made the best of it. And has, yeah. you know, is I don't know if she ever confronts Marcus again. That's a story for another time, I guess. No, Marcus died. So I guess, he died. Yeah, right. I guess we... I, but Amortis is still around. So I guess right. You could yes, I mean it's comic artists. books. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, if someone wants another Marcus story, they'll write a Marcus story. Especially when time travel is involved, uh, you can't yes. help but bring these guys back. But so yeah, I don't know. Uh, there was that misstep in this book, but I think overall this is a pretty strong collection of stories. I enjoyed yeah. the bulk of it, uh, and with when you pair Avengers two hundred and Avengers Annual together, it's it's a really good read. I think. Yeah. No, really good. Uh, like I said, Avengers 210 Annual is one of my favorite comics, and it remains. I, I feel it holds up wonderfully. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, a couple of nitpicks that I'll have, um, or maybe Easter eggs. I feel like whoever did Marvel Superheroes um, 11, you know, the, the, the prequel, yes. I feel like, couldn't they have just read Avengers Annual 10? Like, like they've got Carol in different clothes. If you see, oh right, yeah. Like at page three seventeen, when Rogue throws her off the bridge, and then the the splash page of of Avengers Annual Ten, she's got completely different clothes. You know that that's not so hard to do, right? You can you, can, you could match those up if you really wanted to. Yeah. Um, and then I feel like they didn't read Avengers Annual Ten because in Avengers Annual Ten they talk about how all of the IDs and labels from her clothes have been removed to make her more difficult. To identify. And right. in Marvel Superheroes, we see that it's just a, a fight and spur of the moment, Rogue says... Just throws her off the uh, bridge. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there's no time to like remove her IDs or all that. You know, I feel like that's a little sloppy and that is there's not a knock on Avengers Annual 10 because it was, you know, it came 11 years before this Marvel Superheroes issue, so... Unless I'd Carol just them. didn't have any identification on her at all in the first place... I mean, she is kind of living Fair. in San Francisco. I don't know if she's under an assumed name at the time because we don't know. Because she been... does have a purse, but then the purse gets blown away right, right. away, so yeah. she doesn't have the purse with her. But then it, they do say that the labels have been cut out of all her clothes. Which, unless that's a, car- a random Carol thing, she doesn't like the, how the tags go against her skin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've done that before. It's too itchy. <laughs> cut it off. But it's right, like yes. I don't. I don't write my name in all of my clothes. <laughs> so unless Carol has like they're right. assuming that Carol writes her name in every single piece of clothing that she has I'm like oh man I, I really wanted to know who this person was but they cut their name off of the tag <laughs> yes and I think it's fair to say that this Maddie Pryor is just a, a different Maddie Pryor yeah with this little girl I guess so. I'm guessing it's a, a friend of Chris Claremont's he, he has a friend maybe named Maddie Pryor yeah I guess the timing doesn't really work out there does it right yeah wow Okay, <laughs> fun. This is a this is a great conversation. <laughs> oh boy! So, oh yeah, we forgot. There's actually one more thing in this book here. There's a, a um, just one short story. Right. Um, it's actually a great story. I really like it. It is. It's for one. It's another superhero card game, which yeah. <laughs> which I'm also a fan of. I think it was maybe Patrick that said he was a fan of. Yeah. And it gives nice closure as well yeah. to the the Carol and Marvel relationship. 
I love it. So this is from Marvel Fanfare number 24. It's called Elegy. Yeah, the I, and I love the opening because the Thing and Nick Fury, who are the two people from that two-in-one issue, mm-hmm. or arrive late to another poker game, and they play it up the same way. Like, there's an emergency, got to get there. Oh, they're just waiting for the poker game to start. <laughs> right. And then Carol shows up with Wolverine because they have a little bit of a relationship at this point. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, they are introduced to the new Captain Marvel, who is Monica Rambeau. And Carol's like, what happened to the other one? And right. they're like, oh, he died. Didn't you know? Uh, and right. it, it's like, it's a very, <laughs> like, surely you knew everybody was there. <laughs> like, right. literally everybody was in that gra- Marvel graphic novel. And she's like, no, I wasn't there. I knew nothing about this. <laughs> she she yes. blasts off. And because uh, this was the time that she was in limbo. Right. So, of course, she didn't know. And so she goes to the gravesite, has this really nice, uh, just thoughtful scene of her relationship. Because we, I think we forget that she spent a long time with Marvell before she had her own series. We, right. We don't, we don't remember how, how much of a, a romantic relationship and how close these two people actually were. So it was really nice to have some closure and uh, it made for a really nice end to the book because you really feel like this ha- this is actually the end of Miss Marvel here because yes. now even even her powers are completely different her costumes completely different and now even the source of her origins which is Marvel is gone she is completely a different character now yeah i i appreciate the story i i think i probably had read this in Marvel fanfare when it came out because i was a big fan of fanfare but I don't particularly remember the story, and I would call myself a, a fairly big Marvel fan, but I don't really have a lot of experience with Captain Marvel, the title of Marvel. Um, I you, have you read the I death have of a Captain few collections Marvel? of Jim Starlin. Yeah, uh, I have read the death of Captain Marvel, and I've read some of the collections of the Jim Starlin Marvel with the, the Thanos uh, storyline. But his earlier issues, um, the ones where Carol was really a prominent character, I really have no experience with. So I, I look forward to collections of some of those if uh, if they ever come along. I think a Captain Marvel epic collection series is a shoe-in at some point. It's long enough that it would definitely be worthwhile. And right. uh, I have the first softcover Masterworks volume that has mm-hmm. Carol's first appearance and that kind of stuff. And and it's great. There's a lot of fun stuff in there, especially with Gene Colan's art. Really good. I hope you're right, but I don't see what the impetus would be for a Marvel epic collection. I, you know, like, like I anticipate maybe a two-volume Eternals epic collection at some point. Obviously, with the movie coming out, uh, it just seems that Marvel does a good job of jumping on. Uh, an opportunity, you know, with something coming to the screen, whether it was the Netflix shows or whether it was Marvel movies, uh, to release epic collections around those characters. But then you have ones like Sergeant Fury came out recently. Which yeah, is that new. definitely is came out of left field, and yep. I was so happy to get that. And Marvel 2-in-1, to a certain extent as well, was pretty random. Um so I, if they can do those ones, I think they could do Captain Marvel at some point. I mean, there is so yeah, much of his title that has been uncollected except for in Masterworks, expensive Masterworks volumes. Right. So the work in the restoration is done. They just need to make a soft cover version of it. Well, they'll have my money if they do it. Yes, me too. Even if it's not an epic collection, I'll still pick those yeah, up because it's a it's a vital part of Marvel's history. Uh, Captain Captain Marvel, is, you know, this, especially with Jim Starlin stuff, it's right. the beginning of the entire cosmic world, which is so prevalent in modern comics and also in the movies. So 
it's we got to see it at some point. Yeah. So in this issue, uh, or in this story rather, from Fanfare, I feel like maybe it was Avengers Annual 10 where Logan dropped the hint that he had a past with Carol Danvers, and it seemed like it was some kind of secret mission past of, uh, of when he was maybe in the Canadian service and she was in the Air Force. And then I feel like we see here they talk about that their, their history together as well. Um, or, you know, how'd you find me, Logan? Well, we've been friends a long time. I know you as well as I know myself. Um, And I feel like there's hints that there was a romantic relationship between the two of them. Yes. That she says, like, like that even now is gone because I don't, I don't have anything from my past. So, you know, sorry if, (laughs) sorry if you're here to to get romantic with me. I don't even have feelings for you anymore. (laughs) Um, do you know where we can read more about their history together? Because I, I, I have no I, idea. I don't. I don't. I feel like, again, it, it, Claremont just drops hints, and I feel like he has, you know, a, a, some awesome book in his collection of notes on characters and uh, hints that he's dropped and payoffs that may or may never be seen. But uh, mm. Well, you listeners out there, if you know uh, where we can find this information or uh, or, or where we can read this, Please drop us a note, send us an email, leave a comment on Facebook. We would uh, love to hear that. Yeah, I'll definitely read them. Um, okay, one final comment. I just remembered that in the there's an epic collection, X-Men, It's Always Darkest Before the Dawn, the, where Beast gets his fur. Mm-hmm. So he, he goes gray first, and, uh, and then a couple issues later, he goes black, and it's black with blue highlights. Right. And then a few issues later, he's just blue. Because the the penciler and the artist is just kind of making the highlights more and more and more obvious till eventually he's just blue. He's not black anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not an obvious change. I was just remembered that because of our conversation earlier about Miss Marvel's costume, the blue in Miss Marvel's yeah. costume. So it could yeah. go either way. <laughs> yeah, I honestly think that, I mean, like I said, I, I feel like I've made a good case for why it's blue. But I definitely acknowledge that people call it black and it definitely is colored black uh, later on in the 2000s and such. And there's another time in um, in John Byrne's Fantastic Four where it's right after Sue has a miscarriage and they change their costumes to black, except it's not that obvious because it still has blue highlights. So it still kind of looks right. like they're having, the, the, they have right. the same costumes. Except the and the black only reason you know black. is because he says that they're wearing black. Yeah, exactly. In in a panel, I do. I I know exactly the issue you're talking of. Yeah, <laughs> so it's yeah, it's kind of funny just how they they work things. I think with digital coloring, they can make that kind of stuff more obvious. Um, but right. but they're limited to the color palette at this point, and um, and it's just kind of kind of the way it is. I like it. <laughs> So I have one more thing about Ms. Marvel, uh, the, the transference of her essence into Rogue. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I haven't read a lot of those issues in, in many years, but I feel like the, the whole reason Rogue joined the X-Men is because she was really having trouble with that duality yes. to her persona. Um, so she was essentially sought help from Professor Xavier. But I want to say I never really saw Rogue with a seventh sense, which was a, a key power of Ms. Marvel's. Um, and I never really saw Rogue with any aspect of Cree in her persona. Hmm, right. Which was a huge aspect of Carol. You know, you know, when she would exclaim, she would often exclaim Cree words. She also had, obviously, all that Cree, the Cree scientific knowledge that we never saw, which, again, I was fine with it. I still loved Rogue the character, but it sort of a, an aspect that got dropped by the wayside. That's true. They only use the strength and the flight. 
and flight, yeah, that's, which is aw- which it. are awesome powers to have. Yep, for sure. <laughs> and I, I kind of was not a big fan of Rogue in the movies for that reason alone. I'm like, man, she's so much cooler when she flies and punches stuff. Yeah, but I'm kind of glad that they did that. In fact, if they make a new X Men movie, I wonder how they'll I wonder how they'll do that. Uh, if yeah. Marvel brings the the X Men into the MCU, then uh, if Rogue has no powers, there is a Captain Marvel for her to suck the powers from. Yeah, that would be cool. Hmm, that'd be that'd be very cool. Okay, we should wrap this up. There are just a couple of bonus features in this book. I think um, a uh, um, some original art and a couple of house ads. There's not a whole lot. There's one article yeah. from Chris Claremont about revamping uh, Miss Marvel, which it's a fun read. Yep, it's okay. Um, I like the house ad, the color house ad for Ms. Marvel, where you got a couple characters that we did see and a couple characters that we never saw. Um, oh, yeah. The, the female there is actually Mosquito that Dave Cockrum ended up adding to his Futurians comic. Oh, okay. Uh, nice. She, yeah, so she ended up being a hero in that comic. And this guy here, he looks like another character from the Futurians who's called Werehawk. Yeah. He's a, a Native American who's got the ability to t- change into a big... Uh, hawk, which doesn't look like it's the exact, but the design is similar. So interesting that those characters just never, they never obviously got to those storylines that they had planned. Yeah, that's really neat. I like that. And then obviously they're Dave Cockrum creations. Otherwise, uh, because if he takes them to his own graphic novel, then uh, and and Chris Claremont took his characters and put them in X Men. So yeah, yeah, everybody found a place. So I I wonder though if Dave was going to do a whole lot more than, uh, like I wonder if he found out that the book was being canceled. There's only a few issues left, so he jumped off and went to do something else, and Mike Vosberg took over. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Because these character designs would lead me to believe that he had more to do than just the couple of issues that he did. Right, right. I mean, and he had been doing covers for a while, too. Yeah. What might have been? Well, thank you for joining me on this episode, and you're going to come back on the show, and we're going to talk about... Frankenstein, is that right? Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, you know what? Halloween is always one of my favorite time of years, so let's e- do it. <laughs> Even as a police officer? Uh, you know what? It's. I'll tell you what. If I can get the day off, I take the day off. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> not not because I like to celebrate, because it is a very busy day when, yep. uh, if you're a police officer. So, yes. It's not an epic collection, so if you want to follow along, you're going to have to find the Monster of Frankenstein. It's not even called a complete collection. It's just a Monster of Frankenstein. But it is a complete collection, and it'll be a really fun read. So join us for that. And uh, yeah, if you want to join, see if you want to find us on social media, you can search for the Epic Marvel Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter. You can also find me at the Epic Marvel Pod, sorry, EpicMarvelPodcast.com, where all of our episode archives is, and uh, and you can also email me at EpicMarvelPodcast at gmail.com. So, any final words for our listeners, JC? Uh, no, if 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 you listen to this without having picked it up, then you know what? <laughs> I don't know why you did, but still, pick it up. Ms. Marvel <laughs> yeah. Volume 1 and Volume 2, they're great. Or the omnibus that collects both volumes together. Yes. Yep, there you go. Perfect. Well, we will see everybody next time. Awesome.